0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank The Great Courses Plus, Lightstream, ZipRecruiter, Babble, and our contributors at
1: Patreon for making tonight's show possible.
0: Congratulations! You've made it to the end of our series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. Tonight, as we always do, we close the series out with our own thoughts and conclusions on this astonishing legend. Those conclusions bolstered by the immersive dive we've taken into the subject over the past several weeks. But still... Like all the topics we cover, we're just visitors. Many have spent their lives devoted to this research, and we don't pretend to have all the insights they do. Like many of you, when we began, we knew of the film, sure, but we hadn't given a lot of serious thought to its veracity. Scott and I both had our opinions, of course, but before we dive into the research on a subject, our opinions have no more value than anyone else's really they're sometimes based on nothing more than a cursory glance at the origins of a legend. However, when a series such as this one unfolds, it's a crash course in the topic at hand. There's nothing more exciting for us than that almost tangible feeling of ideas evolving within our minds on what may be at the root of a legend. And that excitement is what we hope to share with you. It's why we do the show after all. But the more we research, the more we come to realize that you should never trust someone else's conclusions without digging deep yourself. The simple fact is, by now, you already know virtually everything we know about the Patterson-Gimlin film. If you've listened to every episode of this series, you can make an assessment right now. Trust your gut. Until this mystery is solved, there is no wrong answer. Beyond that, If you're interested in what we think after all the research we've done, well, then join us for this final episode on the Patterson-Gimlin film. And we'll tell you, as we're sure many of you expect us to. Bill Munns will say to you that the film itself is the best and only empirical evidence that matters in this story. And in many ways, that's true. Evaluate the film and do so to a rigorous standard. He's done that. For some, that is the only thing that should be considered. Others will tell you that eyewitness testimony has little value, and in a criminal investigation, that's the prudent approach. But here at Astonishing Legends, we find eyewitnesses are often the most informative parts of a story, and of course, the most entertaining. Sometimes you have to determine if they're being honest or not, and even when they aren't, you can still use that testimony to inform your investigation. So for those of you that consider yourselves excellent judges of character, We've got a special treat for you tonight as we ramp out this epic series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. An interview with Bob Gimlin himself, the only living eyewitness to this story. You listen to Bob Gimlin, and you decide if he seems like an honest man with a clear recollection of this chance encounter in 1967. Because for us, the possibilities of him being involved in a hoax evaporated within just a few moments of beating him.
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends.
1: I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Bob Gimlin. And uh, I just thought, oh my God, they really do exist. Join us tonight for the
2: conclusion of our series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. Back in Bluff Creek, figuratively anyway. A quick announcement, speaking of being back, all kinds of coffee mugs are coming back into the store. Every color we've ever done before with the new distressed camping ceramic mugs is back. So some are in there now, more will be in there within the next week or two. So visit astonishinglegends.com and click on store to get to those if you're interested in them.
0: Yes, Scott hand distresses each and every one. It takes hours. (laughs) Just because they're all identically stressed. Yes. But after you do that, hit your favorite app store and download Himalaya. It's a podcast player and aggregator that has finally gotten things right when it comes to ease of use and playback. It works on whatever you're using. Yeah, once you download it,
2: your first order of business is to find Astonishing Legends and give us a follow. Just search for Himalaya in your app store. It's a free download. Okay, time to get to our conclusions. Uh, yeah, well, you know, in looking at the stuff we have to say, I think maybe you should
0: go first. All right, I just have a few quick comments. If it's only a couple of quick comments, why is the fan of my laptop going crazy when I pull up your outline? That's because of all the repeated points, I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Again and again.
2: This is it. This is the uh, episode we've been waiting for. This is the last episode of the Patterson-Gimlin film series, which has been a monumentally epic series for us. I was expecting it to be a multi-parter, but it, it really
0: blossomed for one minute that we aren't also glad that it is ending so <laughs> yeah it's been a it's... long wild ride much like uh, the whole show but you know we felt it was important and i don't think it is self-indulgent that we went on this long because this is the whole story i felt that if we'd left any part out like the scientific analysis or just really pared it down so it's you know each thing is just five minutes or whatever you're really missing it because in some sense, yeah, you know, people are like, who cares? I'll never like this subject. I'll just wait till you do a ghost story.
2: There are people that are, and I know because
0: I've read their posts on Facebook, they yeah. are
2: completely skipping this entire series.
0: Yes. And that's fine. Like I said, just go shop one of our sponsors in the meantime <laughs> and enjoy the fine wares we have to offer and service. Yeah. You can
2: find those, even if you're not listening, of course, this is, <laughs> right. they are not
0: going to hear this. So there's no point in saying that's it. true. You can find
2: the sponsor links on the webpage. That is correct.
0: Yeah. No, I know people are, uh, over this and you know that's fine there's things i do in shows that i enjoy where it's just like i'll come back a little bit later yeah still love the show but i think if you like paranormal stories in general this is an example of one of the best documented analyzed scrutinized gone over with a fine-tooth comb cases of at least visual evidence ever for anything strange like this it is, and I honestly was surprised how much
2: information we found when we started digging on this. I didn't expect this much information, or I might have said, let's do this later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's been such a revelation, and there's so much, it has really held my interest. I've had a personal passion for this topic that I was unexpected for me. Right. And so I've really enjoyed this series. Yes, I'm, I'm ready to move on to the next thing. That's part of what we like about our shows. we get to explore lots of different things. But I have really had a good time on this, and it's been amazing to discover everything that we've learned on the the course of this of this journey
0: yes i think we experienced something that we hoped many of our listeners do when they hear a series like this from us is that you go in thinking you know something about the story and then you learn there's so much more to it and it's a pleasant and interesting surprise in that you get your eyes open and for us like I said this is a story that's we've grown up with the story always being around and you have it in the back of your mind but when you really look at it, it's like the film is the data it's the implications of it which are surprising, which we did not consider before until we started looking at this. So we get a great joy when people tell us, it's like, you know, I thought about this subject before and I thought like, yeah, I had that figured out or I read some articles years ago and it ain't much of nothing. But then you hear our coverage on it. It's like, wow, that was really fascinating. I never thought that about this, you know, subject X. That's really rewarding to us. And I hope for the listener as well. All right. Well, here's what we're going to do tonight. We're
2: going to talk a little bit about our final conclusions, and we're going to have some debate about that. We've also written out some sections that... We put a lot of thought into based on everything we uncovered as we went through this series. And then we're going to finish out the entire series and the end of tonight's episode with an interview with Bob Gimlin himself. It's not a monumentally long interview. It was very late at night. We only had about a half an hour with him, but we did get to ask him some interesting questions. Forrest, I love what you've got here in terms of your conclusion thoughts. I'd like you to Go ahead and dive into
0: this, and I'm going to interrupt you as much as possible. (laughs) In the middle of every (laughs) word and sentence. No, I'll try to be good. That's fine. No, go ahead and raise questions. I just wrote this out because, you know, as we were going along here, it's not as well written as I'd hoped, but it's a conversational show. So these were thoughts I was jotting down as we've been doing our research, and I didn't really start writing them out until a couple of days ago, I think, or really an hour ago. So the idea, (laughs) though, is that these are just some philosophical type thoughts that have been going through my mind about the film and the subject and mostly, you know, what it means to me, but also to the world, if this thing is real or not. So first off, the most general and basic thing I can say about the Patterson Gimlin film is that to me, it has always looked more real than fake. Even when I was a kid, I grew up watching all those movies and TV shows from the era, you know, ones that had a guy in a monkey suit or a gorilla suit and were done by Hollywood special effects masters of the day, you know, the ones that we just discussed. And the creature you see in the Patterson-Gimlin film looks at the very least as good and, in my opinion, better than what you see in those professionally produced suits, especially considering all the conditions under which the PGF was shot. Now, granted, there are things... That are problematic with comparing the PGF to a professionally produced motion picture or television show. You have to consider that the PGF is only a minute long and is shaky for half of it, whereas film and TV creatures are on screen for much longer and therefore easier to scrutinize, but also harder to maintain a convincing performance. Also, some of the best that I've seen, like Rick Baker's fabrication and performance of King Kong in 1976, was pretty convincing, I thought, as were the apes in 2001 A Space Odyssey. But also keep in mind that those were more traditional apes, and it appears that Paddy in the PGF is something altogether different, although similar to humans and apes. So for Roger Patterson to have accomplished this feat, he'd have to be as good or better than the best in the motion picture and TV industries, the best of the best who were producing anything like what Roger Patterson had pulled off. And Patterson was clever enough to add a few distinctive elements from a more advanced zoological knowledge of higher primate or ape anatomy than the average person knows. So he must have done his homework or really, really researched it. Things like adding breasts or a sagittal crest, human-like hands and feet, and especially the compliant gait, the walk of a higher but not quite human primate, that has kept experts, academic experts, movie experts, guessing ever since. So bravo to Roger Patterson for creating one of the best hoaxes in the history of all hoaxes, let alone a hoax of a paranormal event. Now, I will agree that using the film alone as evidence on an empirical basis, one cannot rule out the possibility of a hoax. That's just logical to me. It doesn't exactly disprove, or there's not enough there to completely rule that out. So that's still on the table. But then there's the matter of probability, which is still there for me, meaning how likely is it that Roger Patterson could have hoaxed this, juggling all these conditions and elements? How probable is it that even if he had the means of huge sums of money or just enough money for a guy that never had much money to begin with to make this kind of suit and get all this together, and then he has to have an untrained yet expert level skill set in special effects costume making that it's fooling experts. And then he had to find a guy, whether it's Bob Hieronymus or not. That most experts agree would have had to have worn a skin tight suit to pull off the moving musculature that's seen in the suit. So, all these elements have to come together for this to work as a piece of film that has still baffled people for 52 years. So, it's just happenstance that all these things came together to make this incredible piece of footage just by chance, or luck in that one shot, that one take, as far as we know. Not bloody likely. That's my thinking about just, you know, the possibility, the probability that Patterson could have pulled this off, by himself anyway. And even if he had help, it still seems very unlikely to me. It would have had to have been a sophisticated level
2: of help that it doesn't seem like he would have had access
0: to. And that's what I meant earlier when we were looking at David A. Daigling, The Anthropologist, his his book and his conclusions. It's like, well, I can't argue with that. You cannot rule out a hoax based on this film alone. But then you have to look to, then how was it done? What are the likelihoods that this thing could have been pulled off by anybody? And did Roger happen to find people who could do that if it wasn't him? Because, you know, there are famous photos and footage of UFOs, of ghosts and other cryptids. But what, at least visual evidence, has been able to stand up to such rigorous examination by scientists after all these years for coming up on 52 years, and it still stands up? Because other paranormal evidence has either been too vague So it leaves too much to question and doubt, or it's been able to be debunked. But the Patterson-Gimlin film has not been able to be absolutely debunked, only doubted. Right, and that doubt is born
2: not based on the empirical evidence of the film, but just human nature, the people that doubt it, because of their inability to accept the possibility that it's real. It's not based on the film itself. In in my exactly. Opinion.
0: Right. I have a few thoughts about that here in a little bit. But for those who don't think it's evidence at all, you know, I disagree with those like Greg Long who say this film isn't evidence. I mean, you could say it's not enough evidence for your tastes or you don't like the evidence, but it's still a piece of evidence. It's just visual evidence. If you don't buy it for whatever reason, then you discount it. It's easy to say that it's not evidence. If the best you can come up with is that it just looks fake to me, or I I think it's a guy in a suit, that's fine. Nothing can alter your perception and personal judgment if your mind is made up. But I would say that that stance is not based on a reasonable examination of all the factors this film provides. So get the picture out of your mind of current CGI creatures we're all so used to and go watch some films from the late 60s and 70s that had guys in ape suits and make that comparison. Because, you know, now I think we have been visually accustomed to see that. But imagine if you were back in 67 and you did see something like Ready Player One, where King Kong is in the film and it's CGI, but it looks pretty real. You would have freaked out. Yeah. You're not used to seeing that. That would have blown your minds. But back then we had a standard that was not that high. It was a guy in an ape suit. There was no CGI. Now, it was, you know, like King Kong, of course, you know, there were miniatures used, there were matte paintings used, but it was Rick Baker to suit. Yeah. And you know where we were at, for those of you that are Trekkers and you watch
2: the original Star Trek series and the famous scenes that were shot at Vasquez Rocks, which is just 40 minutes from here. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a million scenes have been shot there, but the one where Kirk fights the Gorn. Oh, I love it. And the Gorn, sure. like the lizard guy and they yeah. have to make weapons out of what they find. They have to MacGyver it or they're on the planet. He's just got a sharp uh, stalactite or right. something. <laughs> That costume, the Gorn, yeah. it's 1967,
0: same yeah. year. Yeah, Think about what that looks like and think about what Patty looks like. That's my earlier point that I made here is that if Roger pulled that off, it was, in my opinion, better, but probably in most opinions, as good as something you would see done by the best professionals in the business, because who else is making fake ape suits out there right? and is good at it? Right. Movie and TV professionals. That's who's doing that. So... Either Roger would have had that done for him, but I hope we cleared that up in our last episode here about motion picture special effects experts weighing in on this. Sure. So in that regard, something I would invite people to do is go find a really good, clean version of the film and really examine it. Watch it a bunch of times. And look at all the muscle groups flexing in the movement, the firm, in the face. And, you know, as she turns her head... And you might notice some things you hadn't previously, because I think even Scott, when we started this, he was like, I don't see any leg flexing or any of that, you know, the hematoma business. I don't really see that. You've looked at it a few times now. Have you seen anything more that's kind of surprised you about it? Yeah, I have actually. I've seen considerably more.
2: The other thing that's really cool is that Bill Munn sent us the 5K resolution right. scan that he did of frame 354, as he calls it, because it's yeah. not really 352. And when you look at that, you can see all kinds of things. And and we have that frame posted with this episode yeah. in full resolution. But it is just astonishing and i'm not i'm not doing that on purpose yeah but it really is to see all the detail and understand it. you know it's just the glory of film which is sad to me that film is is mostly dead and gone these days but
0: and we brought this up earlier but when you look at it especially online you have to realize that the people who have seen all these things that you can't see they're looking at much better earlier first generation copies probably of the PGF. Right. And so they are seeing detail that we can't possibly see. But with the help of Bill Munns, he's been able to restore a lot of that. But in out there in the zeitgeist, that's not what people are mostly familiar with. They're familiar with these really bad multi-generational copies where the grain is huge and the definition is low. So that's what we're mostly used to. But if you go back and you look at it though, it's weird. And then one thing that, uh, I think it was a late night, Scott and I were texting and I just said, uh, well, what do you think of that? He's like, it's yeah. kind of unsettling. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little scary and strange. Yeah, it is. Well, now I'd like to talk about the question of Roger Patterson's character. Because regarding any attempts to question his character, you need to keep in mind that logically, none of that really matters. Even if Roger Patterson had been jailed many times previously for being a con man, or ripping off investors with staged hoaxes, or outright stealing and cheating, it only shows a propensity, a likelihood, or maybe just a motive for staging a hoax, but it doesn't disprove what was actually captured on film. It's like when a judge tells the jury they must disregard a defendant's prior crimes because while it may show a pattern, it doesn't prove the current crime being tried was committed by them. That does shade my opinion anyway, and I've heard that. I've been on a jury. It's like, well, I want to hear what this guy did before because he doesn't look. it looks a little shady here. And it does affect people's opinions, obviously.
2: Well, what I always think about, too, is how Roger said... I'm probably the worst person this could have happened to. Yeah, he, he knew. knew he knew what he was. <laughs> right, right. And then to have this real thing happen, and we make a lot of references to, and will continue to in, yes. this, in this conclusion episode tonight, to Jose Chung's yes. From Outer Space, right. one of the greatest X-File episodes of all time. <laughs> but there's a lot of common ground between
0: what may have happened here and right. that episode of the X-File. Absolutely. You know, because Roger Patterson... He could have had Bob Hieronymus dressed up in an ape suit with Bob Gimlin standing by, ready to shout action and shoot a hoax just out of the frame. Like I said, the camera's pointed, you know, maybe, what, 90 degrees the other way. But then a real Bigfoot-like Patty comes strolling by. Yeah. And that hoax in progress wouldn't discount what was captured on film. Because if Roger Patterson had even previously been caught hoaxing Sasquatch encounters on film... It doesn't discount the PGF, you know what I'm saying? Right. Now, if that was the hoax, then you have to go back to looking at the thing that's in the film. Because, you know, remember, much like the boy who cried wolf, (laughs) sure, the first two times he was lying, but that third incident about which the boy was crying actually had a wolf in it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It It wasn't all made up. And of course, you know, you can compare that, but it's entirely possible if you believe that something like this could exist, some kind of ape creature, That it was actually there, or there were fake footprints and real footprints there, whatever it was. But regarding his character, what you believe about Roger, it's immaterial. Because you'll notice that none of the scientists or special effects costume makers who have weighed in on the PGF, either for or against people with much more expertise in this subject than most all of us, none of those experts have brought Patterson's character into their analyses, assessments, or conclusions. And there's a reason for that. It doesn't matter. Hi, I'm Lucas from North Carolina, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. And now, back to the show. So I'd say logically, you still have to go back and address the film. What is it that was caught on film? Something else to keep in mind is that no one has argued that the film itself has been faked. Only the subject in the film. So that's interesting because most of the time you see now with ghosts or UFO photos or whatever, or even ghost photos from the 60s and 70s, like "Ah, that's a double exposure. You can go way back. Yeah. And people are saying that's particular to ghosts. And they were doing that in the 1890s and turn of the century with all the spiritualism going on, ectoplasm and whatnot. People were faking photos because there was money in it. And then UFO stuff, there's fame. I don't know about money. I guess maybe some people sold some books off of that, but people were faking UFO photos. And many of those have been found to be fraudulent. But nobody said that about the PGF. Nobody said, oh, he stuck that in there or it's an optical illusion or it's an optical trick like we talked about before where you can affect the film with special effects or optical printing, as they say. So was, no one stuck a, a Bigfoot in there.
2: Right. By the way, compositing something like that is incredibly difficult, but it's also even more difficult when you've got foreground elements passing in front
0: of the object, which is what's happening in this film. I mean, even today, that's a pain in the butt. Absolutely, sure. But think about this. This would be a whole different story if Roger Patterson had just come back with a story about encountering a Sasquatch, like so many that he put in his book. They're just tall tales or stories, you know, that people can believe or not. They're easy to dismiss. But if he'd even come back with some plaster castings, Well, you know, knowing his background, or if you knew him or reading Greg Long's book and he suddenly came forward with a story, it's like, okay, sure, that story is now easier to dismiss because, yeah, maybe he is trying to pull one over on us and sell some books or whatever his huckstery kind of thing's going on, but he came back with something that's largely unexplainable on motion picture film, something people have been clamoring for. When hearing just stories or seeing plaster casts, let's see a picture. Oh, yeah, Mr. Smart Guy, you're with your story. Well, how about some film? Why don't you get anything on film that isn't blurry? Well, here it is. Well, even if you show an image, that's still not enough for many. They want a body. And I can understand that. It's freaked people out that there is film of something strange that even experts have trouble defining or going through step by step and debunking. And it's the same way, ironically, and Interestingly, much like Chris Murphy said. Conversely, if you're a believer, then you just don't want a story about a costume that some guy said, Oh, where is it? Well, it was in my trunk. I was like, Where is it now? I don't know. Yeah, I, I sold this suit to a guy. Well, well let's see a similar suit, right? You, these were somewhat manufactured in the Yeah, larger you didn't scales. custom make this, right? <laughs> right. It's been weeks and months no, it's, custom it's, making it's, a bespoke suit for someone you never met across the country. Exactly. It's been yeah. said by Philip Morris that that was their standard gorilla suit used in various acts, and that Roger may have altered it a little. Well, let's see the base suit. Not years later. Let's see the one that you had then. Let's see a pattern. Then you just don't want a story of a costume. You want to be
2: shown the costume. You know what? This reminds me that we actually had a listener contact us a few weeks ago about the Philip Morris costume, and she did give us permission to read this on the air. So I want to read this email from her about this. Hello, gentlemen. My name is Clara Jean. I am a professional costume designer and technician, actually originally from Charlotte, NC, my home state. Mm. I want to send a quick note regarding the Philip Morris costume theory. When making a professional costume, especially for a large company like Morris, there are a number of steps you follow. The first step is to make a pattern, a number of shapes you cut out and sew together to create the costume like a blueprint. Patterns for professionally made costumes are cataloged. That way, if they ever need to make the costume again, they can. The fact that they were not able to produce a similar costume shows that they had no pattern. If they had made similar ones like they said, it would just be a matter of pulling the pattern and you have an exact replica. It's a red flag to me that they cannot or have not done this. It's literally, all caps, the first step. So that's Claire Jean. Claire Jean, thank you so much for writing into us. Yeah. I just wanted to throw that in there because that's something about the Philip Morris costume, them not being able to produce one that specifically matches what Patty looks like. I'm not right. saying right. that they didn't make a costume. I'll be talking more about that later. Oh no. That yeah. might have gotten used. But that specifically, they have not produced one that
0: looks like Patty at all, not even remotely. Right. And my hypothesis on that is that absolutely Philip Morris sold top shelf ape and gorilla suits. I believe that they went to a lot of magicians, and I I firmly believe that he didn't really want to say anything, maybe, because of that magician's code. And I also think that he had a suit that did not match what Patty looked like in the film. And that's why it never came out right away, that that's possibly another reason, and also another reason why he never produced a suit for people to see when he made that claim because it didn't exactly look like Patty. Now, there's two things about that. He did make a suit, remember, for that documentary that was going to be shot, I think, by National Geographic. I mean, that was a long time ago. Yeah. In our memories, it was a long time ago. (laughs) And they said it looked nothing like the film. Right. And he's like, well, I didn't have enough time. And I think it maybe ties in with something in a professional sense, like with Stan Winston and Rick Baker poo-pooing the suit. It's like, well, I could have done that, or that guy could have done that for a couple hundred bucks, or it looks really cheap and fake. Conversely, when Philip Morris saw it, it's like, that looks pretty good. I don't mind being associated with that. Now that's pure speculation on my part, but I'm going off of the facts that he did provide a suit to be filmed in a documentary as a recreation, and it was not up to snuff. And so he had to go back to the drawing board, so to speak. There are pictures of him later in life, as we had one on our website here that we got from a, a blog of uh, where somebody met him and he had a suit and it had the breasts on it. Yes. And the mask. And it does look more like Patty, but not exactly the same. I think that was years later made to at least have something.
2: Yeah. I don't know if they still do, but they had it on display in the store. You know, it was an object of interest. Right. It was their relic, their version of a relic. Right. And they needed to have some, especially if they're going to be connected to that story. And it brings a lot of business in and more power to them. And again, as you'll hear from me here when it gets to be my turn, which seems like it's hours and hours away, but you'll hear, (laughs) (laughs) you'll hear that I still think there was a costume. I think the Philip Morris company is telling the truth. I just think that the costume they were talking about
0: and Patty do not intersect. Me too. Yeah, of course they had costumes. I don't think it was exactly what you see in the film. And I think that's why you never saw one being provided as evidence until much later. And even then, the one provided does not fit the bill for me as being the one, or even close to what you see in the film. It's closer. It's not exactly the same. Plus, you still have to have somebody with that build. It's a bulky suit, but you still need a big person with those ginormous shoulders that are two feet wide. Okay, well then, what is it on the film? Now, if Patterson had filmed an actual gorilla in the woods, it would be a totally different story. It would be a very weird story, but it would be something that we could all wrap our heads around and be able to ask more comfortable questions. I mean, sure, it looks like an ape, but where did it come from? Did it escape from a zoo? How did Patterson get a hold of one to film? Or why is a gorilla out in the woods by itself in Northern California, unsupervised, and how is a tropical animal going to survive the harsh winter? These are all comfortable, normal questions. Animals escape the zoo all the time, and we usually think it's kind of funny, especially when they're monkeys or, you know, apes, because they, they're they like us, but they're silly. You know, we love them. But here's the key element. A gorilla is an animal we've all seen, and we know and we love, and we certainly know what people look like. See, I think the problem here, though, is that people have with Bigfoot being real. Maybe one of the most difficult of the paranormal topics to accept, I think the problem people have with Bigfoot being real is because Sasquatch is so close to human beings. And I didn't really know people had that much of a problem. I mean, I, that's one of those things that uh, you hear people will go on about or state, well, I, I, yeah, I, I think UFOs and aliens, why not? We certainly don't seem like we'd be the only ones in the universe. Bigfoot, no way. Yeah. <laughs> not going there. Or ghosts like, yeah, I think my mom saw a ghost. Or... Or I saw something strange. I think there's something out there. I don't know what it is, but a big ape in the woods? No, that's not happening. That is something that I kind of learned with that interview with Rob Christofferson did on his show, Our Strange Skies, with John E.L. Tenney. We mentioned that before. Kind of anecdotally, he would, at his talks, you know, ask people to raise their hands. Like, how many people believe in UFOs? And, you know, more than half of the audience. And how many people believe in ghosts? And even more. How many people believe in Bigfoot? four yeah (laughs) it's just an odd thing but i think there's a reason for it because again wild ape no problem wild missing link type ape that's maybe one step below us on the evolutionary scale big belief speed bump (laughs) and equally problematic whether you believe in creation evolution or a combination of both but this type of creature shouldn't exist right i mean that's according to what we've all been comfortably taught and I think that's kind of what's going on here. But really, what's the big deal? There are two ways to look at Bigfoot that have to do with its origins or where it currently comes from. Either it's a type of previously uncatalogued but natural woodland ape that is just extremely elusive, or it's a type of woodland ape that maybe comes from another dimension or something very woo woo. If it's just an uncatalogued type of higher primate, even if it has better cognition than a regular run of the mill gorilla, Then it's just an animal, right? I mean, that's what it is. It's an animal. It's not a big deal. What is the big deal then in believing it's real? It's not like Sasquatch is the Flatwoods monster, a robot ape, the Jersey devil, or Mothman, or some kind of crazy hybrid chimera animal with the body parts of five different species, or even a chain-smoking wolfman from Skinwalker Ranch. Love that guy. It's just a type of ape. So why does the idea upset people so much? See, my hypothesis is that if it's real, this would make a lot of people have to question where did we come from and how and what else is out there that's this mysterious and strange and real. And if Bigfoot is real, what other strange creatures could also be real? Now, if Bigfoot is paranormal, that opens up a whole new set of problems. But interestingly, it also provides some answers. Well, not really answers, but it solves some of those problems of why don't you ever see one dead in the woods or where do they go? Where do they come from? And I find it kind of funny, but I also respect that, you know, scientists like I don't want to hear that. Do not bring up paranormal Bigfoot. (laughs) I'm willing to go so far as that it is an undiscovered type of ape. But don't tell me it rides spaceships or... Bill Munns, these, uh, yeah. Bill Munns is that way. Bill Munns made no. a joke.
2: I can't remember if it made it in the final cut of his interview, but he made a joke about like, I, I'm not... That has... No.
0: It's like, that's crap. <laughs> I know. I know. Well... <laughs> He's for, a very empirical thinker, though. Well, He's no, just, you you, know. you have to be. And for this to be taken seriously at all, I can understand that argument where scientists, well, Grover Krantz saying like, you know, those guys just, uh, they just cause us so many problems. Yeah. We're trying to be taken seriously here. These are all very serious anthropologists and scientists and, and researchers. And then you have people coming in wanting to tie this in with UFOs and cryptids and all kinds of other strange things and all the, the lovely fun memes we see all the time. You know, disco dancing Bigfoot with uh, shaking hands with an alien. Yeah. But there are many researchers who have found a connection between UFO sightings and Bigfoot sightings and ghosts and orbs and other cryptids and all kinds of strange phenomena. For example, in the Bridgewater Triangle area, That's been often reported. That's in uh, Massachusetts, right? Yes, in the southern part of the state of Massachusetts, in an area that can be roughly mapped out between three cities, Bridgewater being at the northern part of it, I believe, where there's actually three small towns called, there's Bridgewater, Maine, and then Bridgewater, East and West. And I believe that term was coined by Loren Coleman back in 1983 with his book that came out, where he was compiling all these strange stories And you get the gamut of UFO sightings with Bigfoot-like cryptids and strange orbs being seen. And it's a redheaded guy with a beard who's the vanishing hitchhiker instead of the usual lady in white. Yeah, okay. There's a mysterious swamp there. There's all kinds of stuff going on there, but everything under the sun is reported. So is that a hotspot? What's going on there? Same thing was reported by... Linda Godfrey, in her research in the Elkhorn, Wisconsin area, and Beast of Bray Road, where there's a lot of strange phenomena. People will see a lot of the same things. So, very serious paranormal researchers have made connections between overlaid phenomena happening, sightings of different stuff. So, is there a connection there? I know that's way beyond the realm of actual physical anthropology or anybody wanting to take that seriously. And I can understand that. Like I said, we all have jumping off points, right? You and I do. It's like, when are we getting off this train? (laughs) It's like, you get to a point where that's really weird. Okay. That's just stupid. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not going there. It's just your personal belief, but for the scientific community, I can certainly understand. You can't regard any of that, but there are other researchers who are in these fields that do consider these other things and they have found connections. So, Is it like a Skinwalker Ranch, a perhaps more magical area of the country, like a northern Utah where this stuff happens, or in this case, as we're talking about the Bridgewater Triangle, southern Massachusetts? Is there a connection? But it does make you wonder if there is a connection to something paranormal when you cover stories like the Ape Canyon incident with Fred Beck, which we talked about earlier in our series. And there are a few stories out there where Bigfoot seems to be impervious to bullets. But what happened that day that was actually kind of corrected from what Fred said later was that the day before the attack, they'd seen a Sasquatch and one of the guys apparently shot it and was certain he hit it like a couple of times. I think in the back or in the side, but like basically uh, center mass, that thing fell over the ridge. Remember, and they chased after it and the guy was like, I'm pretty sure I hit it. I think even in the head. They go there and it either fell down into the gorge where it was carried away by the stream, and that was one case where it was swept away. Or the second time after the attack, they see one, and I think Fred himself claims he shot one and was sure he hit it. But then they run over there and they see it running up the hill, like at a tremendous speed. If you believe Fred Beck. It's just strange because these people claim they shot them. There is the story of the encounter of the invasion at Chestnut Ridge, which is a Seth Breedlove story. Small Town Monsters film. Remember, we talked about that one. Yeah. And that one was weird because that does involve some kind of UFO landing craft of some kind. And these were Bigfoot type creatures, you could say, but also had some werewolf properties to them. That's more like a Skinwalker Ranch thing. But what was interesting is that, again, if you believe the accuracy of the account by the people that were there, and, and also there was a law enforcement officer who was there on the scene who showed up. It was a guy, kind a younger guy farmer, probably in his 20s, I think, and then two uh, neighbor boys who got so scared they ran off, but the guy had a gun, he had a rifle with him. And I'm not sure if he shot at them when the sheriff had shown up or the police officer, but he claims he shot it at these two things because they were starting to come onto his land. He claimed that... He saw them kind of wave off the craft. There was a larger one, there was a smaller one. One waved and then the craft like took off. Like, we're good here. We'll just come back in 20 minutes. <laughs> Whatever it was, the craft takes off. So that's a connection made to the strange craft. And these things were large humanoid bipedal type of creatures, but there were some werewolf type properties and then a bunch of other weird stuff. Sounds a lot like a Wookiee. It is very Wookiee spaceship. <laughs> it's very Wookie-like. Yeah. Yeah. One odd thing, again, I who knows about these little details in these stories, but I love to remember them and catalog them in my brain here. But one of them is that he claims that he shot one and he was, again, pretty sure he hit it. But he said that when he thought he hit it, it sounded like a stone dropping in water. Like it went bloop. Right. The creature didn't react at all, but he's like, I'm pretty sure I hit that thing. And it just made a ploink sound, (laughs) like (laughs) bloop. Yeah. And he hit it a couple of times and, and it didn't seem to phase it at all. Interesting. So you wonder, is Bigfoot bulletproof? Well, of course, that's not something... Kranz and Jeffrey Meldrum and all the other serious scientists want to even consider. And I understand that. But that's the kind of the fun part of it. I guess unless you're scared out of your wits and this thing's approaching and nothing seems to be stopping it. But that is one angle that some more, let's say, free thinkers have brought up to explain where do they go? Is it someplace like another dimension? Or why don't we see dead ones? Why do they seem to just pop up? Like they show up and then they seem to disappear, even in the PGF. Yeah, they kind of came around that bend and there was a large stump about 8 to 10 feet tall, big overturned tree stump, and she was kind of behind it. But they did chase after her. And then again, we had a little bit of debate about this. How did she actually disappear into the brush? Because she's a big barreling creature. And I remember Bob Gimlin saying it just seemed like it just stopped. Whatever she was plowing her way through, whatever kind of dense brush was there, they saw that half footprint that was wet on that rock, like she rested her foot there or stepped on it, and then that was it. So it's odd. It makes you wonder, though, if you're open to that kind of thing. So anyway, that's part of it. You know, but is it tied to the rules? Like, why don't we see them all the time? Or do we? And just not in a general public way. Because there's tons of reports. There continue to be so to this day, even past Ray Wallace and other hoaxers' claims. It continues to happen. So if it falls under the rules that we're not allowed to capture one, why is that? Why are we allowed to see this thing? And, and like so much other paranormal stuff, is it just enough of a glimpse to make us wonder and question this world? What's the purpose there? Or what is the rule? Who knows? So that's if you want to go to the woo-woo side here. But, you know, one thing I will say that should be looked at, that we encountered with a lot of scientists, is that they won't even look at it. And I think it's compelling enough anyway to just look at the film, but it always boggles my mind when there are scientists who won't even just take a glimpse at it. I mean, yes, they're going to deny it after the first viewing, but there's some that won't even look at it. And it reminded me of, you know, like those church officials who didn't bother looking into Galileo's telescope because they felt they didn't need to. I'm just telling you, you're wrong right now. It's like, well, yeah, just look through the scope. It's like, no, I don't need to. Because I think that they were worried about what they'd find. That's a speculation on my part. But I think it's just like, you know what? It's like D.W. Grieve, I think, uh, was the uh, mobility expert. Mm-hmm. It just, he found it unsettling, having to consider it. But he did at least take a serious look at it. And he was kind of uncertain or kind of on the fence about it. Devil's advocate here, yeah, sure. I, you
2: know, I think about Ed Primo, mm-hmm. a nationally, internationally recognized forensic audiologist, considering what was on our dr 60 what oh, yeah. that EVP yeah. was, I would have gotten it if he'd have said, I can't get involved in that. Oh, I, mean, I understand. You know, I mean, I a, think a paid yeah. professional witness expertise is, you know, when you cross that line,
0: that's why I was thrilled that he agreed to take a listen to it and, a- and oh, analyze yeah. it. Absolutely. So, no, yeah. I, I laud him for that fact. And I just place my own curiosity there because it's like, if I was given something that's kind of way out there, like... Look, I'm not going to go on the record and publish a paper that this thing is real, but I want to look at it. Yeah. Let's see it. Because that's the way my brain works. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to stand behind this or anything weird, but I'll look at all your fake ghost photos and your UFO pictures and stuff because it's, I just find it interesting. And I can understand why an, an academic just won't even go there. I'm glad a few did. And I understand why most don't. But you just wish that they did, because I think the more people that weigh in on this, the more we can start to figure these things out or figure out what's going on, maybe. I don't know. And I know a lot of people out there don't care about Bigfoot, one iota, and are glad the series here is at an end. But consider this. If Bigfoot could be real, then what other strange creatures and mysterious wonders out there could also be real? That's that fear I talked about earlier here. And if only Bigfoot is real, then at least it shows that this world is a tad stranger than many of us are willing to consider. Bigfoot, I think if you consider what's on the table here, there are only two hoax possibilities that come forth so far, and that is Hieronymus and Morris. And to me, neither of those add up, and they certainly don't add up to each other. So then it's some other guy with an impossible build in a then impossible suit. But what I personally find interesting is that, you know, even when I was a kid, I thought that it was likely that it was real. Growing up, that's my personal imagination. When I saw the film, it's like, wow, look at that. I don't know. You want to believe it or it's fantastical and fun to believe that kind of stuff. But, you know, you're a kid, you don't go much into it and you just kind of hear the stories ever after about, oh, this guy claims he faked it, or this came up, or, you know, scientists think it's a hoax, and you just kind of shove it aside. But you cannot keep that fun bit of hope alive that, like, well, maybe it is real. So what I found interesting here is that it wasn't until I was an adult, until we started doing this series, that I could fully grasp all the ramifications of the story because I never really looked into it that closely either. You know what I'm saying? You hear about the stories and stuff would pop up in the news and it's the same stuff we hear nowadays except uh, a lot more limited, mostly in print. And then we get here and we do a deep dive and you consider all those things and I can fully grasp that. And what happens is that now you start to consider the implications of that being real and that's where the real... Uh, fun was for me and the real interesting aspect of looking into something like this is that, okay, what if this film is real? Then how do I have to change my thinking? Because the big shift here is not that if Bigfoot exists, because I've always thought that Bigfoot was possible in some way. I don't see what the big deal is about it not existing. I've always thought that was possible. But it's that if you were curious as to what one really looked like, you know what I'm saying? It's like you've heard of Bigfoot. It's like, geez, I wish somebody would have some good film of this or I wish somebody would at least catch one, and if you can't catch one, somebody get a close-up with a digital camera or something, you know, and we still haven't really gotten that. But this film might be the closest we get, because if you ever wanted to know what a Sasquatch really looks like and wish there was good footage of it, here it is.
2: Hi, this is Lori from the Olympic Peninsula in Washington
1: State. When I'm not chilling with a chai latte, chatting it up with Bigfoot, I'm listening to Astonishing Legend. Now, back to the show.
2: So we know it's been weeks and weeks, and before I get down to my conclusions on all of this, I thought it would be a good idea to revisit just the major players, just briefly, because there's really only four major players, in my opinion, mm-hmm. in the original story. One of them is Roger Patterson, who was the man with the camera in Bluff Creek that day. Bob Gimlin, his friend, who was with him, but did not have a camera, but was an eyewitness. Then there's Al D'Atli, who was involved in the distribution and the monetization of the film after it was made, who allegedly worked not only to make money off the film that Roger and Bob had shot, he also, according to Bob Gimlin, kind of pushed him out of the picture. We heard that from Gimlin himself. And then the other major player, in my opinion, there's a lot of people that have said, things about the film and the likelihood of it being true or a hoax or whatever is Bob Hieronymus. You can't not have him at the top level here. He was a compatriot of theirs, a friend who had done stuff with them off and on over the years. And he claims, as we've said and pointed out, that he wore a suit and that it is him in the Patterson
0: Gimlin film. Right. Now, before we progress any further, I think there are two gentlemen who are very deserving of mention here. On the research and fieldwork side of this, and that would be John Green and Renata Hinden. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, you're I'm talking, talking about, about
2: the actual yes, participants in the event. Exactly. but You're right. They absolutely do have an honorable mention at this point
0: in the conclusions, of yeah, course. Looking at the aftermath and trying to get data from it initially there, right in the field, those guys were there and actually went to the site and measured out the footprints while they were still there. So yeah, but as far as talking about the players in the actual film and filming and the nitty gritty of it, those are the guys right there.
2: Yeah. And we don't really know if Bob Hieronymus was part of that, but that's what we're going to talk about here in Mm -hmm. a second. He claims to have been a part of it. So he gets in the mix. Now, here's the thing about Hieronymus. We pointed this out. He actually passed a lie detector test on television where he said that he wore a costume Mm -hmm. and it's him in the Patterson Gimlin film. However, Roger Patterson also passed a lie detector test. So the question is, how can they both be doing that? Well, one is that lie detector tests are notoriously unreliable. I think that's the big one here. But there's another possibility, and this is coming around to my conclusions, and that's that they're both telling the truth. And this is something that Bill Munns touched on in our interview with him. And I agree with his assessment, but I'm going to go a little bit deeper on it here. The first thing to consider is the anecdotal evidence. And what kind of value does anecdotal evidence have? Now, Bill Munns himself said on our show just last week that anecdotal evidence is useless. Mm. And we agree that you can't quantify the value of it on its surface, but you can ascribe some kind of value to it when you take a hard look at the circumstances and the people involved in whatever story you might be covering. Now, if you keep an open mind... Always consider the sources of your information, whether it's directly from an eyewitness or from someone who makes a living publishing what said eyewitness recalls about an event. That is a filter that you have to put on to any anecdotal evidence that you're taking into account. Now, anecdotally, in this story, there were only two eyewitnesses. And I think people tend to forget that, especially after all this time. Only two people saw this creature, Patty. One of them is dead. In fact, if Patty or the person who played Patty in a costume are dead, then Bob Gimlin, at 87 years old, is the only living survivor of this legendary event, of this meeting. So, we have to go on Bob Gimlin's word at this point, and that's where we do the thing that we do, Forrest and I, at Astonishing Legends, in trying to evaluate the character of the man before we make a call. Who is Bob Gimlin? What is he like? Now, it turns out by sheer coincidence, shortly after we decided to greenlight this monumental series... YouTube Paranormal host Jeffrey Gonzalez was having Bob as a guest for a long interview in Fresno just about a week after our first show in this series, would be running and we bought tickets to that fresno is only about four hours north of us so we hopped in the car and we drove up there and while we were there and also i'd like to thank jeffrey gonzalez for just giving us free access to bob and connecting us with bob's current manager who's helping him with a tour that bob is taking right now and then also bob who graciously took some time at the end of this long interview late at night 87 years old mind you agreed to sit down with us and talk to us for about 30 minutes one-on-one.
0: Yes, that was a tremendously serendipitous and fortunate accident that we kind of tripped upon this interview that we could get to. Yes. And Jeffrey hosts his own show on YouTube called Paranormal Central. So he's got his own paranormal show. I think he's been researching in the field for about 15 years. And what I didn't fully realize is that Fresno... Is a hot spot. Yeah, there's a lot for, of weird stuff going oh, on in, in Fresno. Pl- He's right there in the middle of it. I didn't connect this actually until a couple of days ago. The Fresno Night Crawlers. Yeah, Fresno yeah. Night Crawlers. <laughs> <laughs> so they have their own Night Crawlers. Yeah, walking pajama pants in the middle of the night on people's lawns. But it's a hot spot for all this activity, and there are tons of Bigfoot sightings there. It's 11 p.m. Do you know where your jammies are? <laughs> They're walking <laughs> uh, towards Bigfoot to be yeah. slipped on for the night.
2: Anyway, that getting the time with Bob was amazing, too. And, you know, coming back to the importance and difference between anecdotal and empirical evidence in a situation like this or a story like this, is the problem with that phrase for us is the verses. We see them as forms of evidence that can work together. And we also believe that both have to be taken with a grain of salt because the pervasiveness of confirmation bias has equal powers in both categories. But the simple fact that we consider anecdotal evidence is what makes our approach to this subject and all of the ones we cover different. We think it's okay to take it into account as long as you do so with a critical eye and accept that it's also impossible to shut out what you want to believe. So that's where we're different. We never claimed we're only going to look at empirical evidence, because when it comes to folklore and legendary encounters, nine times out of 10, there is little to zero empirical evidence, and we have to go off the anecdotes. So in a way, we spend more time dealing with anecdotes and trying to suss out what's behind them. And you know, for me, one of the milestones in terms of our personal investigations, I don't want to go off on a tangent here for Mm. too long, but was, for example, the Jersey Devil story and the origins Mm -hmm. of the Jersey Devil and how we were able to tie that all back to a political fracas that connected to really just a lot of people talking smack about each other, which may have actually led to the original idea of the Jersey Devil. That's where you are really
0: looking at anecdotal evidence and trying to piece together what actually happened. Yeah, and people now make the connection to a Tulpa theory, is that... Has this weird creature or elements of this legend that have been described for all these years come together in some kind of manifestation, right? Maybe some things are being not, I would say totally physically, but maybe something implanted in the subconscious or conscious reality of ours that's being seen some, I guess you could call it a thought monster. Well, sorts. it's,
2: it's like the ghost. There was that one particular plantation. I can't remember now, but there was a ghost that actually appears in a photograph mm-hmm. and they said, oh, that's so-and-so. I can't remember her name. Oh, um,
0: that's right. It's and not a
2: real person. The people are like, this person never existed, but yeah. there's all these stories about her and bang, here she is in a photo.
0: People say that about Bigfoot now though, as well, that it's maybe a Tulpa-like creature in that it's been part of our stories and legends and lore since Native Americans were here on the continent, passed down to white settlers, and it's just become a part of the land. And when that happens, maybe these things manifest themselves somehow. Again, that's out there. That's a little woo-woo. is is both woo and woo.
2: Let's bring it back around now to empirical evidence and the idea of it. The thing about the Patterson-Gimlin film is that the PGF itself is empirical evidence. It is a tangible item that has been seen, copied, and analyzed. And last week, again, you heard from Bill Munns about all the work he's done on it. He has 35,000 frames of it stored at high resolution from every known copy. Anyone that thinks that there's anything to that film that Bill Munns hasn't seen and analyzed is kidding themselves. He is an expert on both the film, including all known copies and stills from it, as well as creature costume creation in Hollywood. Now, surely he would have seen something that's not right. Now, last week, you also heard Bill's conclusion. He's a thousand percent convinced that the creature in the PGF is, quote, and I loved it when he said this, just as it appears. Meaning his belief is that Patty is an unknown cryptid and that the film shows her, just as she is, in the wild. And he'll be the first to tell you that rationally, he cannot reconcile her existence with the other lack of evidence pointing to it. He pointed out himself in our interview with him that no other film has ever been shot that is as convincing. No costume has been made that can mimic Patty. And as every skeptic knows, no bones and no bodies. Where are the rest of them? Even Bill had a hard time with those facts, but he is still positive that Patty is real. And on top of that, He doesn't care about the anecdotal evidence at all. He doesn't care about that evidence that I say we take into account. That evidence means nothing to him. He did not take one ounce of it into consideration for his conclusion. His conclusion is based on the film, not stories about people's character and personalities, not events that happened before or after the film, just those 954 frames of footage. The only thing left for him or anyone to do is to apply his principles of analysis to the missing original role, which although lost, we suspect there are those that know where it is. Now, I don't want to move on without giving a nod to the scientists as well. And Forrest, you did a lot of the legwork on our episode about all the scientists and their reactions. And if we take Bill out of the equation and we go to the scientists, what did they think? And we heard from them in part four the week before last. They had differing opinions. And, And correct me if I'm wrong here, Forrest, but the biggest takeaway is they had debates on little things, like whether or not a human could mimic Patty's walk. Some said no way. Some said it would be easy. They debated the possibilities of that by debating the frame rate the film was shot at, which may forever be an unknown. Some saying that if it was this frame rate, a person could do it. If it was that frame rate, they couldn't. And that's something that we can't know because Roger's the only one that knew that. He's passed away and the camera is a little imprecise in its frame rate settings. The only thing you can do is look at it and try to judge if the movement in it is natural or feels Keystone Copy sped up or slowed down.
0: Right. I believe it was either John Green or Rene DeHinden that said uh, if you did project the film at 24 frames per second, which is one of the settings. And again, this speed dial on the camera does not have click stops. Yeah, there's no notches. It's a variable, right. So it's just numbers and a little notch, and you have to line that up. Potentiometer. Yeah, it's right. It's it's in the ballpark. And again, the camera itself fluctuates because it's a, uh, I believe, a battery-operated or or maybe a crank-operated motor mechanism. Yeah, I can't remember the... If it had, I, I, I think it's crank. Yeah, I, I don't think it had cr- batteries. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm familiar with one uh, uh, of kind of of the area a little later in the 70s. The Canon Scopic had its own rechargeable batteries. Yeah. in the camera case itself at the top, and this one I believe was crank. So it's imprecise, but you can achieve a decent estimate that it's not 64 frames per second. It would look like it was in slow motion. It's not 24. It looks a little herky jerky. Yeah, Keystone copish. So it's probably under. 18 and below, because that would be one of the settings. So it goes to reason that at least Roger would have it somewhere on one of the numbers. But in either case, essentially what they were trying to determine, the scientists, was that at a certain speed setting, this walk is either achievable or not achievable by a human gaining that amount of distance. But it's all an imperfect data set. And what you end up with is some experts disagreeing with each other, even with the data. So... You go back to that argument of even the scientists, even the experts will disagree with one another.
2: Yes, and, and for the, you kids out there who have no idea what we're talking about when we say the Keystone Cops, just <laughs> Google it. Um, because it, it occurs to me that it is passing out of the zeitgeist and probably did maybe 20 <laughs> years ago. We heard that many of those scientists had differing opinions on whether or not Patty was real. And they rooted these opinions in scientific analysis. But here's what we didn't hear. Not a single scientist said that the creature in the PGF was definitively a human being in a costume. I want to rephrase that. In 52 years of analysis, with dozens of scientific minds looking at the Patterson-Gimlin film, not a single one stated that it was unequivocally a human being wearing a costume. In fact, the most often heard refrain was, if it's a
0: hoax, it's one of the best we've ever seen. And like a lot of the scientists and the motion picture special effects costume expert creators, who gave a favorable impression of the film all said the same refrain is that if it is a costume, it's one of the best we've ever seen. And if this is a man in a suit doing a performance, it's spot on. Yes. And most of the ones who said something contrary to that later
2: retracted their statements. After they were able to study it further or after other people said to them, are you sure? They said, you know what? I don't know. I had nothing to do with it because there was rumors that some special effects guys, certain ones had something to do with it. Others didn't. You can dig all that out of our series or the books associated with it, which we have links to. Now, the, the only person categorically stating that it was a man in a costume is Bob Hieronymus. He says he was there and that it's him and that Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin were all in on it. And he'll even show you how he can walk like Patty appears to walk. Now, we've already gone over all the holes in Hieronymus's declaration. We discussed both the anecdotal and empirical evidence against it, but since this is the last part of the series, let's restate the empirical evidence one more time, or at least one fact of it, which is really all you need. Bob Hieronymus' joints are not in the right places to match the joints we see on the film. Therefore, he cannot be Patty. Casting aside all of his recollections about the event that simply do not align with the events at Bluff Creek, including how they got to the location, the nature of the costume, the idea that he wore street clothes underneath it, the list goes on and on. The simple fact is, if it was that easy, then it would be that easy to do it again. No one has. Many have tried. All have failed. I'd like to add that Bob Hieronymus did not make his claims to being the man in the costume until well after Roger Patterson had died and wasn't around to make a counterpoint to it. There are reasons that we know that Patty cannot be human. One is her arms are longer than her legs, which is more in common with primates than human beings. Human arms are 20% shorter than human legs. But what about arm extensions? Totally possible. But then how do you flex the fingers? Animatronics in 1967? I don't think so. The other thing is the length of the lower leg from the knee to the foot. Also the length from the knee up to the hip joint. This is not something you can fake. Look at a stilt walker. You can make things longer or maybe bigger, but you cannot subtract from the human body. Therefore, the only way you could successfully fake Patty's build would be to use a mime whose body type was highly unusual, perhaps a partial amputee in the case of the legs or someone with an unusually shaped head to accommodate the drastically receding forehead above the brow line. If you're gonna have somebody with a forehead that is common to all of humanity, then you would have to make the head huge to give the appearance of the receding forehead, which is something that Bill Munns talked about last week. So my question to you is, if you think it's a hoax in somebody in a costume, how likely does it seem that Roger Patterson found a partial amputee with a receding forehead, a differently <laughs> shaped head that would right. fit into Patty's costume? By the way, does yeah. that sound like Bob Hieronymus? No, that's not what he looks
0: like. This goes under what we said before about the scientific objective conclusion about all this, which I believe is rational in that a hoax or a man in a suit as a possibility cannot be ruled out. But you have to now look at the probability. Then Roger Patterson got somebody to be in this suit but it doesn't look like it was Bob Hieronymus. Right. So then where is this really oddly shaped person that's massive? Because in some physical morphology aspects, according to Grover Krantz and others, that this thing is even larger than Andre the Giant in upper chest proportions. So it's going to be somebody very special. Right. And then where
2: are they? And then when you come to the holes in the story, according to the skeptics, there's the one thing that seems to come up the most is how did the film get processed? They're all obsessed with this timeline on the film processing. I think we've shown fairly that it could have been processed off the books. Al Diatli, who was a wealthy man, may have bribed somebody to do that on the weekend. And he chose to protect their job and identity, but not saying who they were. Again, we covered the idea that it may have been some kind of off the books lab and that those places existed, even
0: specifically in Seattle, where the film was processed. Right. So now we're looking at the converse of that argument earlier about keeping open the possibility of somebody in a suit hoaxing the thing. We also have to keep open the possibility that it's possible that they did have the film processed in time for that showing between them filming it and getting it to Seattle and that first showing. So that's not been ruled out or been debunked. It's possible that that could have been done. It's a tight turnaround. It only took an hour, though, to process the film.
2: Once the machine is up and running and you want to process it, it's one hour to get it processed. One hour photo. The other thing that skeptics get hung up on is the changing details in the story of events. And this is a thing for me. This comes back to how anecdotal evidence works. It's a story that's been told for over 50 years now about one minute of their lives. One minute that would define everything they would do from that moment forward until they die, until they leave this world. It's a minute that likely sent both Roger and Bob Gimlin into varying stages of shock if you believe it wasn't all hoaxed. And I'll just say this about that idea. I don't know, Roger, other than what we've read about him, but I've met Bob, and I would say between the two of them, he's probably less likely to be in shock than Roger because Bob Mm. is cool as a cucumber.
0: Uh, (laughs) Well, (laughs) he is a very experienced, always has been throughout his whole life, outdoorsman and tracker and hunter and horseman and a fearless man of adventure and the outdoors. And when he talked about... Not being able to find Patty or track her back into the woods, or he had to stop at some point because, like I said, the thick underbrush seemed to be unaltered at some point, and he just gave up. Plus, Roger was back there, so he couldn't make his way through the brush. That's an odd thing when yeah. he says, "Well, it kind of stopped being trackable at some point." And also, another thing that he said to us offhand was that people always say to him, "Well, then where are the bones?" And he says, "Well, if you know if you've been out hunting." Something that a lot of hunters and outdoors people will tell you is that large animal carcasses don't stick around very long in the woods. So Bob made a point to us, it's like, yeah, I've, you know, very rarely come across a large animal carcass unless it's been freshly killed a large deer that's been killed or just died because soon after that there will be a lot of small critters and scavengers that will make off with the meat and the bones dust thou art and unto dust thou shalt return <laughs> or pretty quickly in the or woods. snacks yes, yes. <laughs> to, to be distributed evenly or i think we've said this before maybe they're smart enough and have enough custom to bury their own dead or at least hide them somewhere We don't know, or maybe they vanish, but... Well, we've already found, you know, and you can look at Werner Herzog's films that have
2: come out, uh, The Cave of Forgotten Dreams, and there's been other caves since then. We found caves with bodies in them that have been sealed up for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. That's just something to consider when you're thinking about where, like you said, if there's a sentience to these things, if they're real, about where the bodies go. And then, of course, there's your whole thing about how they jump on a ladder on a UFO and just...
0: (laughs) I did not... They fly away. The point is about just as an animal, though, or even an ape, if they are closer to humans, well, there's been evidence that Neanderthals, which are much closer, of course, to humans, very, very human-like, not so much ape-like, that's a fallacy. There's evidence that they did bury their dead with, I believe, flowers and plants around them. So where are the bones? We don't know. Maybe we've just not discovered them, if they have been buried carefully or hidden. And as far as the scat or hair or other physical evidence which people are asking for, well, people have claimed to have found some of those things. I don't know how conclusively they've provided a match to something that's unknown DNA-wise, but I would say most of the time, if people have come across poo or hair in the forest they don't know that from a deer bear or bigfoot you know unless you're out collecting it again some people have claimed that and of course it turns out to be deer hair or or moose hair or something or or horse hair a lot of times but people have claimed that they've got samples and it's in various states of being processed one thing jeffrey told us is that it's very costly to do this So it's not done very often, especially by people who don't care to do it in the first place, I think. Yeah, Yeah, nobody's really gathering behind this to push it through in the scientific community to get it analyzed. So it just... It just sits there in a Ziploc baggie somewhere. Well, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy
2: of ignorance because the scientific community is refusing to look at these things. So as a result, they've never been studied properly. So what they're going to do is say it doesn't exist. There's no proof of it. While at the same time,
0: refusing to analyze any possible proof that's been produced for analysis. I talked about Mark Evans, Dr. Mark Evans up in the Himalayas in the the National Geographic documentary, I believe, where they took DNA from a, a high altitude pool where there shouldn't be any type of ape creatures And they came back with a DNA sample that was 99% human. What do you do with that? That's not a picture. That's not footage of this thing. It's just that you know now that there's something out there very close to being human, but not quite. So if we found something out in the woods and it came back like, well, we found some poop and it's 99% human. It's like, that's not going to be enough for people who are claiming they want physical evidence. Right. And that's the only way that a lot of people are going to be satisfied is if you come back with a body. Hi, this is Kalen Capson from the Peg and Plays podcast. When I'm not busy interviewing guests and editing musicians, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show.
2: All right, so now I want to come back around to the idea of Bob Hieronymus wearing a costume because this is the... Probably the highest profile accusation of a hoax there is out there. I want to go back to how I said a few minutes ago how I thought it was possible that everyone in this story might be telling the truth or a form of it. And by everyone, I mean Roger Patterson, Bob Gimlin, and Bob Hieronymus. We know for a fact that Roger was trying to film some sort of documentary or docudrama, that he was trying to raise money to fund a proper Bigfoot expedition to look for Bigfoot. And it was his idea that he could do this by creating a documentary film about the sightings and the various things that were happening and and putting that together and using it to get money to further fund
0: operations to go actually get evidence of Bigfoot. That's been reported in Greg Long's book, by interviews with people that Roger was trying to get them together.
2: Jerry Lee Merritt, the musician who was friends with Roger in his interview with Greg Long, he stated that that was a goal.
0: People have asked, what's the proof other than Greg Long in his interviews? But there is a photo that he has in his book, I believe, that has Bob Gimlin dressed in a long-haired wig.
2: Yes, Uh, because he was dressed as
0: a tracker, an Apache. He is a quarter Apache, but he had like a full-blown... Yeah, Native American wig on him, and he was going to be the wise Indian tracker, along with the old-timer prospector that were leading these gentlemen in this quest to find a Bigfoot or Bigfoot evidence, and that was the basis of the story. Now, but we don't know how far they got really in the filming other than maybe staging some scenes, right? Right. So that's the question. Was Roger trying to do an early version of Monster Quest,
2: get a Bigfoot on film to drum up interest in an expedition? Why wouldn't he do that? We actually did the same thing, sort of, when we launched our Patreon page, albeit for comedy, which is debatable if that part worked. Mm. But my point is, we bought a Bigfoot suit. We put our friend and early guest of the show, Mark DeAndre, in it, and we made a video (laughs) asking for Patreon support. It's still up there. You can find it at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. But does that mean if we go out in the woods, which is entirely possible that we might do at some point in the future, and try to get evidence of Bigfoot or something unexplained like that on camera, does that mean just because at one point in the past we had a costume and we did that funny bit for Patreon, does that mean we can never be trusted again? That everything we shoot for the rest of our lives is fake? Probably. Yes. Yeah. Well, (laughs)
0: That's how people think. That's how people think. Exactly.
2: But, you know, what if Roger did buy a costume from Philip Morse's company in Charlotte? What if he asked Bob Hieronymus to wear it? He filmed it, and then he had to discard what he shot because it looked like everyone else who's tried to fake the Patty footage. It looked completely absurd. So maybe it was shot or tested, but never shown or used. Now, Bill Munz in his interview mentioned a man named Kimball who in 1967 or 68 saw some footage of a guy in an ape suit that Roger Patterson supposedly brought in. Now, everyone looked at it and they all laughed. And this man, Kimball, said that it was the Patterson film. He was talking to sure that it was the Patterson-Gimlin film and he had knowledge of film and film processing. He said that the film stock was a different kind of film stock from what we know the PGF is. He also said it looked like it was processed in what they call hot soup, which is when you adjust the chemicals to bring up the exposure of the film because it was shot too dark. Hot soup would have made the film extra grainy. The PGF is not grainy. Bill Munns will tell you that. He scanned it at 5K. Kimball also talked about forced zooms, etc., like fake panic baked into how it was shot. That's not really what we're seeing in the PGF. And additionally, he seemed to think that it was shot on a different kind of camera, possibly an Aeroflex. So none of anything about that film that Kimball saw lines up with the PGF. So what does that mean? Munns thought that maybe Kimball saw Bob Hieronymus in an ape suit from Philip Morris that Roger Patterson shot, and I'm with Munns on this. This would mean that Bob Hieronymus is telling the truth. He did wear a suit. Philip Morris is telling the truth. He did sell a suit to Roger Patterson. That means Bob Hieronymus did put on a suit. He did walk in it for a film test, and that means he can tell the truth, and the only thing about his story that might not quite be true was if it was the footage from Bluff Creek. Which you would have to then suppose that he is either lying about or he's convinced himself that he was the guy in that footage because he didn't come forward until 20 years later, or, you know, he didn't publicly state that he was the guy in the costume until 20 years later. Maybe he's misremembering it. On the other hand, Bob Gimlin said very clearly in Fresno that... Roger owed Bob Hieronymus money, and Bob Hieronymus was going to get that money one way or the other. So there's a lot of reasons. Or get even. Yeah, yeah, or get even. Things were going to—it was all going to come out in the wash. So that allows Bob Hieronymus and Roger Patterson to both pass— lie detector tests, because in a way, they're both telling the truth. What that would mean is that Roger shot that stuff for that film, and then he was hoping to use it, because he's trying to make his film to drum up money for the expedition, and the Bigfoot part of it was ridiculous. And he wound up not using that footage, and he may have never even told his wife about it, because it was such a disaster and a waste of time and money when you think about the cost of the costume, and also the film, and then the processing of the film, and however much time it took to go out and shoot that If he does that before him and Bob Gimlin come across Patty in Bluff Creek, then you get a scenario where everyone is all telling a version of a truth that is pretty accurate. Philip Morris, Bob Hieronymus, Roger Patterson, and Bob Gimlin. So I just want to point that out, and and that's where I currently am falling
0: on the theory line. So you're going with the hypothesis that Roger Patterson actually bought a suit from Philip Morris for Bob Hieronymus to wear, and he wore it at some point
2: for some filming. Yes, and Roger Patterson called Philip Morris back and said, how can I make this look better? How can I make it look more real? And then maybe he did some changes to that suit, and then they filmed it, and it looked absurd, and they discarded the whole idea of
0: it. That's a better solution than maybe a homemade suit, and maybe there were both... I just think that that suit at the time was way too expensive for Roger Patterson because he could have bought a 16 millimeter camera for a third of the price. This is the perfect
2: segue into my next section about Roger's character. He may have purchased it on credit. He (laughs) was notorious for getting things he couldn't quite afford. Right. Or maybe he was going to rent it and return it.
0: Whatever the reason was, of course, I believe that Morris said that he sold it to them. And two things about that, then. Philip Morris never said that Roger owed him for the suit, that it was purchased. And secondly, Bob Hieronymus never said that he filmed anything prior to the Bluff Creek Patterson-Gimlin film. He never mentioned that, oh, we went out and did some tests a couple of years earlier because that idea with Roger Patterson was a couple of years before the PGF happened. Right. So you would think Bob Hieronymus would, would say and include that, not forget that, like, oh yeah, well we also No, uh, he have this would other not suit. if he knows that
2: it wasn't him at Bluff Creek, but he wants to maintain the idea and the story that it
0: was him at Bluff Creek. Well, that's what I'm saying. Then he's lying by omission about earlier filming. Possibly, allegedly. Again, we don't know. It's just that I don't believe I've ever come across anything where, where Bob said that he had shot some other stuff. So something's not right about that story. Well, a lot of it for me is not right about that story. Why would Bob Hieronymus say something to undermine his own story, even if he knew it? Not to undermine it. I think it strengthens it because he could say like, Roger shot other footage of me earlier wearing a Bigfoot costume. He was really into this. And the PGF was me there at Bluff Creek doing the same thing. You know what I'm saying here mm, yeah. is that it doesn't matter one or the other, but though. if it happened <laughs> though, what I'm saying is if it happened, yeah. why not include that in your making up of the Bluff Creek well, story because as well? because the, the other footage doesn't exist and it's
2: an even harder thing to prove to me what this footage exists, and he can just say it was him in that footage in the costume
0: there. Right. So what we know, though, is that there's footage to me, to the logical person, which does not look like Bob Heronimus in a suit. Okay, that's what he's claiming is real. Right. He's not claiming the other stuff, which might be real. Well, there's no proof of that, you know what I'm saying? But you don't have that footage to compare to. Right. So what I'm saying is that if it really happened that he was filmed... A few years earlier, and more likely to me, wearing some kind of costume then that Roger made at home, because that's what he could afford, maybe out of that horse hide, that stinky red horse hide. And it was really goofy looking, because Roger made it himself. Roger had some artistic ability, but there's no evidence that he was a really good costume maker. By any stretch. Right. So he makes this goofy suit. And maybe like Bob Hieronymus claimed, it is fur glued over a football helmet. Well, you're making a
2: really good point here that I hadn't thought of until just now. So I'm glad you brought this up. The natural progression of events for Roger, if he was trying to film or some sort of reenactment or glimpses of a Bigfoot for the documentary that he wanted to do to raise these funds, would be first to try and make one. And then when that one failed miserably to maybe buy one from somebody like Philip Morris. Right. So those could all be existing scenarios, which I think it's really good that you brought that up. But I still don't agree with you that Bob Hieronymus would point out that all that stuff happened. No, I But I see why you would say that. I can get there with you on it, but yeah. I mean, no,
0: the, the easier thing to do is just point to the one incident. Right. If it was true, because for the person that's going to create a lie, it's easier, as all liars will tell you, to incorporate a lot of truths into that bigger lie. Because it it buoys the rest of it. I'm not saying that he's thought this all out. That's all speculation, of course, on my part. I'm just saying if it was true... Yeah, I don't know if that's where Hieronymus's head is at strategically.
2: Right. No, I get when, that. And how this unfolded. And also, the other films don't exist. And then if you say the other film does exist, then you're opening the door... To people saying, oh, the Philip Morris costume was in the other one. This one isn't a costume. He he would be opening that door if he said that. I wore this costume. If he came out, if Herodimus came out and said, he made one out of horsehair, We tried that. I looked like a man in a potato sack. It was ridiculous. Then he decided that he was going to buy one. So he bought one from Philip Morris. We put that on and people laughed about it. And so that one was ridiculous too. So then we got an even better one. Where would that one have come from? He couldn't have done that. No, you know? but, but Bob Aronimus never
0: said that either. He, no, never said, any- he never said he'd put on a store-bought suit. He said he put on a several-piece suit that Roger made. Right. That was his claim specifically. Not that it was, this was a really good suit that Roger bought from some really good costume maker. I get all
2: that, but I would also suggest that there wasn't a whole lot of cross-communication going on between the players. I don't know. Especially if it was made up. Yeah. That's, that's, well, that's, if it's made up. Well, but I also point. don't yeah. think that Roger would have said, this is where I got this suit. And da da da. da. Well, I think obviously. and also I don't think Bob Hieronymus would have necessarily ever even seen the film. If Roger says, here, come out here for a day, I want to pay you some money, which he probably never paid him because Roger didn't pay a lot of people. Bob Gimlin said he still owed him money, <laughs> but yeah. come out here, do this. I'm going to film you, whatever. And we know this. I know this from when you film something, when you're an independent filmmaker, because you and I have both been in that boat. We know lots of people that do it, even to this day. A lot of times you don't ever see the thing you were in. If you, especially if you ask somebody to come do a thing for a day, rate, right, Whatever you right. go away, they're not all involved in the whole process. It's just
0: a body in a suit, yeah. you know, actor meat. No, I you know, all, all I'm saying is that, well, you know, I didn't look at what questions Bob Heronimus was actually asked by the polygraph administrator who gave him the test, because I'm sure, as people know, you don't give a long answer in your polygraph; those are yes or no questions. Yes or no question. So it's were you the person in this suit at Bluff Creek on this date, and he must have passed that part. You know, yes. specifically, not like, did you ever wear a Bigfoot costume? Yes. Were you the guy on this date? I have to believe that it got very specific to that incident, and he must have passed. But I will only go by what Bob Hieronymus has said and his description of the costume, which was nothing like the Philip Morris suit, and that it was stinky, it was made out of a red horse hide that Roger skinned out, and he had a football helmet on, which I'm going to guess the only thing that would look decent would be those old leather helmet ones which were closer to the head and not as ridiculous that Roger glued some fur on top of that and Bob brought a a spare glass eye to use so he could turn to the camera right at that moment and it would look real. It wasn't spare. It was one he was using, I think. No, no, no. Was it it a spare spare one? Yeah. Yeah. No, because he he mashed it in there with some clay. I forgot it was spare. No, see, that was the idea is that he had one over that he mashed into the eye socket. That's a very detail-specific story. It's a weird thing. It's a weird thing to include that he just, like, at the last moment, like, hey, Raj, let me try this. Right. (laughs) So what you're saying is from
2: my theory that you have just deconstructed live yes. on the air, <laughs> well, uh, the component yeah. of it that doesn't work for you, and I and I see your point, right. is the Philip Morris part. It's that, That's one of them. Yeah. No, it's all of it, actually. What's wrong with the other part that, you know, that this costume was made and shot and then not
0: used because it looked bad? That's all possible. I definitely think that, yeah, it's a possibility that should be considered that he put on some kind of costume in the past, I don't think a Philip Morris costume in the past. I think if it looked goofy, it was more likely than something that Roger made. That's what the guys were laughing at. If it was a Philip Morris costume, which are pretty good, then it would look more authentic. And people are like, well, oh, that, that looks kind of scary. That's a big old ape in the woods. What I'm saying is that that's a possibility that should be considered. But I just find it odd that the story that Bob Herodimus sticks to doesn't mention any of that. And I get your points why you wouldn't want to. You're introducing other stuff. But if it was true, why not add that? Because I just see that as logically saying... Roger did this before. There's six other guys that'll tell you that because we all went out in the woods and you tried to stage this. My counterpoint to that is I think it's possible that Bob
2: thinks he was the guy in the suit for the PGF at Bluff Creek. Because if it's all those years earlier and he goes out a few times... And what he wants to talk about is how he's the guy in the famous film for a variety of reasons, not the least of which being owed a $1,000, according to him. Right. I just think that there's no reason for him to mention all these other incidents that there's absolutely zero evidence of. And then on top of that, if he says, I'm the guy in the PGF film, which was his primary goal, and then he starts introducing all this other stuff after the fact, and, oh, I should have said that, the wit under yeah. the staircase thing. Yeah. It's too late to do that because then you know you're undermining your own story when you start adding and changing things after the first statement you made.
0: Made. I suppose. I'll just say that I don't think that it's any type of misremembering or early dementia or something where he just kind of came to believe he was really the guy at Bluff Creek. I think that's possible. It's, I think it's, 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 possible, it's possible, that possible that he told
2: himself that over and over and over for years and years and years. That's a proven phenomenon. I've done it myself with much smaller white lies. You, <laughs> but it's where you convince yeah. yourself that that was you because 85% of it is actually something that did happen to you. And then you add a little something to it and you tell it to yourself over and over and to other people people and eventually you get to a point where you're like no that is what happened especially the older you get and your mind right. starts rearranging the furniture i believe that that is entirely possible with the case of bob Hieronymus, especially if he had gone out and put a suit on for roger patterson and been filmed in that suit and then started to piece all this together and come out about it 20 years later after telling all his friends in bars for decades that it was him in the suit and him in the suit mm. and then you know what it was me in this you know what it was me in the suit at bluff creek really yes yeah. that was me But all total
0: speculation. Indeed. Every single component of of it,
2: which is the case of all my theories here and my conclusions.
0: Okay, very good. All right.
2: So moving on to, to talk about Roger's character, Patterson's character, and sort of the assassination of it in a way by Greg Long in his book. There was a lot of things in the book about how Roger wanted to make money. Making money is not a crime. Anybody who needs food and shelter that lives in a capitalist society wants to make money because they need to eat and provide for their family. I do think that Roger was determined, if not obsessed, with proving that Bigfoot was real. And I also think that was based on actual experiences he had that he didn't have evidence of. I think that his quest to film Patty was born out of an experience he had earlier that he did not gather evidence of or proof of. And he had castings, and he said that he had encounters. And I think he became obsessed with proving to the rest of the world that what he saw the first time that he didn't get any evidence of was real. So to me, I think that's what set him on this mission was proving that something that he saw was in fact a real thing.
0: Well, it's like any researcher in the field, you get a piece of evidence and some people hear stuff and they file it away or it just becomes an interesting story to tell around the campfire. Same thing with ghosts. Some people have a ghost encounter they believe is real. And it's like, wow, I don't know what that was, but that's an interesting story I can tell to friends or maybe not because they'll think you're crazy. And some people have an experience and they become paranormal investigators and write books and go for the rest of their lives on these ghost hunts and continue to be active in the field. Same thing with cryptids and Bigfoot. And Roger was one of those people that I believe, well, he said that he'd heard Bigfoot cries. And that was what was funny is that maybe they were real. It was some kind of strange Bigfoot call because remember it was Ray Wallace had played them some recordings, I think on a cassette tape. Yes. And Roger goes, oh, that doesn't really sound like anything because it was probably Ray Wallace screaming out in the woods or his wife, you know, (laughs) trying to fake stuff. Right. And maybe Roger had something that was more authentic. That sounded like a big guttural ape call It's like, well, that's not really what we've got, but okay. Yes, just to remind everybody about Ray Wallace, this is the guy that made the fake
2: Bigfoot track, you know, that made the molds or wood carvings and then went out and left tracks all over the place. Right, so
0: that was his big claim and continued for years to do that. Yeah. But in Roger's case, I believe you're right in that he had some experience out in the woods. A lot of people do eventually spend enough time in the woods it's not that common still. It's a small percentage of people, but we've got a lot of stories just from people knew of people or had their own experience of something weird. And it's usually never a full on sighting, but tree knocking, rocks being thrown near people while they're out, all these common things that people have heard grunting, grunting it's all the same kind of stuff. So I believe this may have happened to Roger. Well, he he said he had a little bit of experience with that and he got the gold bug. He got bit and he was just really interested from then on. But I don't think so much so as we see with other stories that we wonder about, that people have a small experience where they gather some decent evidence and then to keep that generating interest, maybe fake a few things. Yes. And their conviction is that, well, you know, I really did see some stuff and maybe I have to fake some things. We've seen
2: that more than a few yeah. times. The yeah.
0: first incident
2: seems like something that really happened. And then for whatever personality tick or whatever with it for the experiencer, it's like, I need more people to believe this. So then they hoax secondary and tertiary events. Yeah. Or they like the attention they've gotten that they've never gotten before. Right. And they continue to fabricate things to kind of stay in the limelight on that, on that scenario. So
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, mean, that happens. Right. So I don't know if Roger actually faked some of those castings that he had, but he was definitely there on some investigations in southern Washington state, as we said before, that were investigated by other serious people that obviously Roger did not create. So he was interested in the phenomenon for years after, until his death, and it was a lifelong passion. You're right, it's something that he thought, hey, if I can capture evidence, or maybe film one even, or maybe make a documentary, some aspect of this, where I'm fulfilling a passion that I'm really fascinated by, and make a bunch of money, so much the better. But it doesn't seem very likely that he got all this together to stage a hoax for making a bunch of money because, again, it's just a minute
2: of film. So moving on, just briefly, I wanted to mention something that Yorma Taconi said when we had him on about playing Chaka in the Land of the Lost movie. It was a quote that stood out in his uh, interview with us where he said, longer hair lets you get away with more. And the first thing I thought when he said that, and that's something he obviously learned from being on the film and wearing costume, was that Patty's hair is not really all that long. She does not look like Chewbacca, The hair is short, more like what you would see on a silverback or a gorilla of some kind. And something else that Bob described to us in person about her was that the fur was worn away in the areas that it should be from the arm swinging or other friction areas that come naturally from body movement.
0: Well, it's just like your little dog, Lou. You know, her her fur is very thin and you can see where her joints are, where her legs are and on the belly. Yeah. So it's not like the fur on her back because that's where a lot of movement is. So if you look at Patty, if you look at the film carefully, it does look silvery or that you can see lighter colored skin on the sides where the arms are moving. Because again, that's a high friction area. So again, if it's a suit, it's a very clever and accurate (laughs) addition to the suit being accurate.
2: I also want to point out, you know, since this podcast is a matter of record on the PGF film, about the location, I just want to make it clear that the location of Bluff Creek has been positively identified, analyzed, scanned. The actual trees that were in the film have been found. There's no question that the film was shot in Bluff Creek. I want that to be absolutely clear. It was definitely not shot in Yakima or anywhere else for that matter. So if the film was a hoax, we can definitively say that the location itself was not a hoax. And we know that for a fact. We talked about Ray Wallace a minute ago. Is it possible that he made the three sets of tracks that drew Roger Patterson to the area? Were those tracks fake? They were the ones around the construction equipment that I believe got back to Roger Patterson's wife, Patricia, who later said, here's the story that I heard. You should go down to Bluff Creek and Mm -hmm. check this out. And so there's that possibility that that drew him to the area. And that gets us to the whole – back to the whole Jose Chunks From Outer Space X-Files <laughs> episode about the idea of fakery being intermixed with what ultimately wound up being a real experience. And I want to touch on that again is that if Bigfoot is real and there's frequent sightings in this area and then you also have people like Ray Wallace in the area making fake tracks – there's nothing that says those two things can't coexist other than if for you personally, the possibility that Bigfoot doesn't exist. But if Bigfoot might exist, then there's no reason why someone making fake Bigfoot tracks, especially out alone in the woods, might actually even bump into a Bigfoot, at which point the real Bigfoot might get mad and be like,
0: what are you you doing? (laughs) Well, maybe they'd be curious about seeing other tracks that weren't theirs. Yeah. Because one thing that Ray Wallace... As far as I've read, never mentioned was that he had different and varying sizes of big feet, big wooden feet that he had a friend carve for him. Yes. Maybe he did. That would certainly be a clever thing to add is that there's a junior, a mama, and a, you know, it's the three bears and that there's three various sizes. But I didn't see anything where Ray said that he had different variations of feet or different sizes. And there were three different sizes of feet found around the area. Now the ones that were found around the bulldozer that Ray Wallace was trying to I guess prank one of his machine operator workers for him because Ray Wallace I believe owned the company that was up there. So it's the boss doing some shenanigans right up there and like I said that would be something I might even do not nowadays because it's a thing but like it's just a kind of a funny like what barefoot giant made these? I you know, it, you know, I just read a thing on Reddit <laughs> two days ago. It's probably a repost anyway,
2: but yeah. it was about a guy who for a long time put on these giant penguin feet and marched all around (laughs) on this beach. Yeah. And I guess for like a decade, I don't know, I'm sure I'm getting the figures wrong. Everybody thought there was a huge 80 pound penguin. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, I Eventually he came clean. Right. I read that. I mean,
0: that's, that's good natured. It's yeah. Maybe you're wasting people's time and that they're checking that out, but it's kind of funny to think there's a 12 foot tall penguin (laughs) somewhere uh, walking around. But, and I, so I could see a guy who's just a, a fun loving prankster To strap that on, but there's been other things about the tracks found that don't seem to match up with what Ray Wallace has claimed. And again, I'll state this from my previous statements is that Ray Wallace never said he was involved in any way with the PGF. That's
2: a good point. All right. Well, I'm going to get down to my three hoax possibility theories. I think you had two Forrest. I got one more than you. Hmm, Good uh, for uh, you. But I think two of mine are similar to yours. One of them is that Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin were both in on this hoax. It was carefully orchestrated Planned out, and this would also involve a third party in a Bigfoot costume. That means they planned the location, the costume, the mime, or the person playing Patty, the fact that it would be a single take at the end of a roll of film, the realism of Roger frantically chasing Patty for the shot the attempts after the fact to bring in tracking dogs, the attempts to have scientists look at the film, all of that is all part of the hoax. Bob Gimlin being so tired from the trek out and the fact that the truck almost slid down in a mudslide with the horses in the back and everything, he was so tired from that return trip home that he actually slept rather than come to the first screening of the film. All of that would be just cover for the fact that this was a hoax. And also, you know, what else would be cover is Bob saying that Roger had told him, don't leave me here. I'm out of film. The horse ran off with my rifle because Roger was concerned with those three sets of tracks that brought them to the area that there was another adult there, probably larger, because if they saw the mama bear, daddy bear is bigger and badder and madder. And then also there's a kid maybe somewhere. So where are those? Roger, all he has is an empty film camera to defend himself. So he doesn't particularly want Bob to go off tracking this creature, but that's a made-up statement because the creature isn't a creature at all, but it's someone that they hired to be in a costume. So that would mean that Bob Hieronymus, if you get past all the stuff we've already said about how the costume doesn't seem to work for him, but let's say it did and it was him in the costume, that would mean that he would have to stand there and they would have to get this perfect film in a single take and or destroy other film that didn't work, which would be weird because the exposed footage prior to the Patty film is just normal trail footage
0: that they had that they were filming when they were out there. Because you'd have to shoot 70 feet, I guess. Well, yeah, it it was like 75 feet. Right, of just normal, what they call the horseback footage. And, oh, Bill Munns also stitched that together so you can see an interesting panorama of the scenery. Yes. Which is on our website too. We took that from the Bill Munns, website where he's just knitted those together so you can kind of see it's very rough terrain around there right logging roads and kind of torn up landscape there that they were riding their horses around so they they planned it again that's ingenious yes to fake that 70 feet first and then have this at the very end because there's no edits you know it was all processed in one piece of film so that's they would right. have had to shoot that and then maybe they rehearsed it maybe they had bob do the walk, and they they rehearsed how he was going to jump off the horse and, and then run they got up. the perfect take in one
2: take at the end of a 100-foot roll of film right. on the last
0: 25 feet. Right. Or maybe they shot 10 rolls where they tried that. Yes, you but know. then
2: for all 10 of those rolls, did they shoot 75 feet of them just hanging out and riding horses on they, the first part of all of those? <laughs> they would have Because they, had they to. knew that would be more convincing. Yeah, they would have had they to. They did all that, right? Know, and I'm then saying, on top yeah. of that, there's another person out there. Bob Hieronymus or someone else who came with them and they staged this whole thing. And that person has remained remarkably quiet, unless it's Bob Hieronymus, for their whole lives. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't add up to me. That's with them both being in on it. There's also the idea that Roger hoaxed it and Bob Gimlin didn't know about it. And this would be brilliant. Fresh from the mind of a man whose prior endeavors to produce income involved building tiny carts (laughs) for small animals to pull for children at fairs, Roger came up with this plan to get someone, maybe Bob Hieronymus, to wear a costume, lay in wait on the trail a few miles upriver from their camp, staying hidden as Bob Gimlin and Roger rode up. This guy, Bob Hieronymus, or someone else, then pops out and walks as Patty did to convince Bob Gimlin, the only person that didn't know what was happening, that they had just happened upon a real... Bigfoot. That's a possibility there. The thing about this is, and by the way, I'm leaving out the possibility that Bob Gimlin might have hoaxed Roger. And mm-hmm. there's two reasons that I'm leaving that off the table. One was that Bob Gimlin was completely iced out of profiting from the film after it was shot. Right? Why would he mastermind something and then allow himself to be sidelined, going so far later as to sell his court-awarded 51% ownership stake in the film to Renee DeHinden for just a few token dollars? Doesn't make sense. And this is the other reason We've met Bob. He's an honest man. I would stake my reputation on that. I do not believe that Bob Gimlin is lying.
0: Wait, your reputation is worth something? I think so. Okay, we'll We'll go with that. My son thinks I'm pretty cool. (laughs) No, that's nice. Um, (laughs) No, when you you talk to somebody, it just, it never seemed like Bob Gimlin had any interest in furthering or being a part of this at all. As we said before... He was only able to take that time off because his hot mopping a roof. That's th- dealing that crew, with hot
2: tar, by the way. Yeah, and
0: a mop, and yeah. it's hot, and it's, you're doing it in the late of summer. So they were getting laid off. That's the only reason he had time to go on this, because he wasn't going to take time off from work. Right, he just happened to bump into Roger in a parking lot.
2: Because he saw Roger's truck and it was like a Plymouth pickup truck, which to him was an anomaly. He was like, Plymouth makes trucks. He's looking at it. (laughs) And then Roger comes up and the impression that you get from Bob was they actually hadn't seen each other in a while. It's just like, you know, you have friends, you go few years, everybody's working, doing stuff. They hadn't seen each other in a while. And he comes up and says, hey, you know, and they reconnected. And then that's what led to Bob saying, yeah, sure. I'll go Bigfoot. I don't know, whatever. I'll go with you. Yeah. It was that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And also Roger offered Bob Gimlin some money, which Bob said <laughs> the other night, he's still waiting on, but uh, <laughs> yeah. right, right. Uh, it just doesn't feel like this well-orchestrated thing. Yeah. And so yeah. that's the other thing there then there's one last possibility in my mind and that is that someone hoaxed both Roger and Bob and maybe that would be Ray Wallace or someone else who knew they were coming up there and this is the only possibility that i think could be real the only possibility mm. for a hoax mm-hmm. but i still also personally i feel like it's highly highly unlikely because i as i said i believe bob gimlin is an honest man mm-hmm. i believe bob gimlin believes he saw a living breathing creature and that's again Quoting Bill Munns, just as it appears, I believe Roger Patterson might have been a schemer, but I also think he had a good heart. Even when Greg Long seemingly tried to force Al Diatley to declare Roger a shyster in his book, The Making of Bigfoot, Al refused to say Roger didn't have any integrity. All right, here's Greg Long just leading into, it's a little bit out of context. If you want to read all of this, you need to go to page 244 of The Making of Bigfoot, The Inside Story by Greg Long. This is from the hardcover copy of his book. This is Greg Long speaking. I'm going to be frank with you because I've talked to a lot of people. A theme that runs through these interviews, Roger Patterson wasn't a terribly honest guy. Al D'Atli responds, I wouldn't, I don't want to, I don't think he, I'm not going to call him dishonest, but he, Greg Long interrupts, well, let's put it this way, lack of integrity maybe, or, and D'Atli responds, well, his integrity was always in place by the fact that, you know, don't worry about it. I'll always pay you back. And he always was going to pay you back, he said, as his smile turned into a sardonic grin. When he got rich, and he always had a get-rich-scheme running, and I was involved in three of them, he was a good salesman. All right, so this is my point. This says something about Roger to me, but it also says something about Al not feeling comfortable saying that Roger was dishonest. Yeah, Roger... Yeah, maybe he didn't have the money to do all the things he wanted to do and that he was a dreamer. Because what I'm seeing here in this interview is I believe in his heart, Roger fully intended to pay all the people he said he was going to pay. Right. And that's a far different thing from this crazy, like, flim-flam artist going around, making a living, completely tricking everybody his whole life into being parted with their money.
0: Yeah. It's a different
2: kind of person
0: earlier before the film it wasn't a con that was making much money anyway it wasn't like well, i found the golden goose it's this bigfoot game i'm gonna keep putting out uh, bigfoot stuff i mean other than ray wallace doing it for a laugh trying to fool people and uh, make posters and all kinds of stuff but whatever but with roger there was never the sense though that he found a gold mine here that just kept paying off you know that this was a bigfoot slot machine and uh, so he was bilking people and on the run and and cheating creditors and all that kind of stuff he was very small time he just had this dream and he put out that book which was a collection of stories just the year before which wasn't making him a whole lot of money wasn't a, a number one bestseller and then now he's got to pump that up with a film it's just that he was interested in it and i could see here though kind of the tone that some people who've been interviewed for greg long's book have complained about In that, well, that's not exactly what I was getting at. Not exactly that you're putting words in my mouth, but you're shading the tone a little. And the thing that I will
2: say in Greg Long's favor is that he's remarkably transparent about his efforts to lead the conversations (laughs) because he's got all that stuff in his book, too. Yeah. I suppose so. (laughs) It's like, yeah, I wanted him to say that Roger was shady, but he wouldn't. But then I said this, (laughs) you know, it's an, and I'm paraphrasing and making a joke,
0: but still it's, you got to go back to the end result of what's in the film and Roger again with who, who never had really two nickels to rub together. How is he pulling that off? Is it just happenstance? You just really got lucky. That brings me back to my point of a third party hoaxer, because
2: in my heart of hearts, I believe Bob Gimlin is an honest man. And I never met Roger, but from what I've learned about Roger, I don't think he was necessarily the most perfectly honest guy, but I don't think he had a bad heart. And so I think that for me, it seems more likely that if it is a hoax, it's a third party. So that would be a true mythical master hoaxer who knew, because it was no secret really, that Roger and Bob Gimlin were up there, going up there and looking around. They'd been out there 20 days when they shot the Bluff Creek footage. This guy procured the ultimate costume, laid in wait for them to ride up on their horses, all in hopes of convincing Roger, a man who seemed obsessed, an overused word, but appropriate here, with proving Bigfoot existed, and Bob Gimlin, someone who essentially was like, yeah, sure, I'll go with you, that they had seen a creature. But who would that person be in the costume? It doesn't seem like it would be Ray Wallace. He made fake feet. It's a long way from stomping around by yourself in the woods with fake feet to wearing a full body costume and standing around in it potentially for hours waiting for them to ride up so you can walk past them and hopefully also get away to make it stick. We've already said how hard it would be to make a costume like this. He would do all this just to hopefully trick those two guys. Additionally, whoever it was would have fully been risking Getting shot to death. Yeah, that's my number one (laughs) logic flaw here is that... Two guys on horses with rifles.
0: Well, look, if you're from the area, you know, these guys hunt or whatever, and they're probably going to be carrying long guns and... If you startle them in any way, you're just as likely to get shot.
2: Yeah, as Bob Gimlin <laughs> so, said repeatedly in Fresno, I was a crack shot. He didn't <laughs> oh, yeah. miss. He did not miss. No, no.
0: Because a lot of people know if you've grown up in a rural area and you're with outdoorsmen, the rule is you don't startle somebody because you're very likely to get plugged or ventilated, as yeah. they say up there. <laughs> so it's very risky to come popping out wearing a uh, a big hairy suit because you could most likely be mistaken for a bear. And they don't know if you're being charged or not. So that alone is like, that's really foolhardy for somebody to just jump out at Roger and Bob wearing a big old hairy, what looks like to me, a bear suit upon yeah. first glance. But you had made a point
2: about Ray Wallace kind of feeling bad for Roger because he knew Roger was ill and maybe didn't have a long time to live and had this obsession with Bigfoot.
0: Yeah, that's what was reported by Ray Wallace in that newspaper article that we dug up not so much an obituary, but a recap of his life. And that he was a decent guy, Ray Wallace. Yes. He, loved by his family, very generous man. And we're kind of poking fun, but he just, he loved to have a laugh. And that was his kind of an odd way of doing it. We've all known people who are kind of pranksters who get a laugh out of that. That was just kind of the way he, he found humor. But also being a decent hearted person, Ray Wallace did feel sorry For Roger in hearing that his cancer was essentially uncurable, and especially back then, they they didn't have all the options we do now. And he did want to give him maybe one last thrill. That's according to Ray Wallace. He said, you go down there and you'll see something. That's the Jose Chung thing. Maybe he did leave footprints and he knew that Roger would find them. But again, he never claimed that like you go down there and I'll be wearing a suit or you'll see somebody in a suit or you'll just see something. I think he just meant footprints.
2: And as you said earlier, he claimed he never had anything to do with the Patterson-Gimlin film, even though he came clean about everything else he did while he was live with the tracks and everything, he said he never had anything to do with the Patterson Gimlin film. That's right. So that means if it wasn't Ray Wallace, it would have to be somebody else, someone I'm going to call Perpetrator X. Perp X is a genius hoaxer, the likes of which the world has never seen. Mm. A person capable of creating a costume in 1967 that has defied 50 years of constantly improving emerging technological analysis of the film. A costume with no seams, a costume that not one single person has ever replicated and filmed in a comparative way that wasn't completely laughable, a costume that has never been found and no equal has ever been displayed in 52 years as of this recording. This is also someone who can keep a secret for 50 years, the ultimate secret of fooling the world for so long with the Patterson-Gimlin film, someone so stoic and committed to the host that they never needed to seek the limelight, or maybe they just died shortly after it was made. A person that must have had a horse hidden somewhere that they hoped to walk back to through the woods so they could take them back to their own truck and maybe trailer where they could get back into street clothes and make a clandestine escape. This is Perp X, and Perp X is perhaps the greatest hoaxer that ever lived, and like the killer of the Black Dahlia, he may never be known. To be clear, this is firmly in the absurd column for me. I would submit that if the Patterson-Gimlin film was a hoax for any of these reasons, why aren't there more holes in the surrounding story? All of Bob Gimlin's details add up. How full the moon was. Yes, we checked. The weather. The road they took in and out. And Gimlin never offers any facts on things he doesn't know. He'll be the first to say, I wasn't part of that. In a story as elaborate as this one, keeping it all straight would be exceptionally difficult. It would be akin to trying to cover up a murder, especially as much as this has been analyzed. It simply wouldn't hold up, and you can't point to a little fog about how the film was processed as something that brings the entire fabled House of Cards down. We've shown that it only takes, as I said just a few minutes ago, one hour to process that film. All you have to do is find the right place. So if it's not one of those three things, a hoax by both Roger and Bob, a hoax by Roger alone, or a hoax by some brilliant third
0: party, then there's only one thing left for Patty to be, and that's real. I agree. And as you alluded to earlier, my two conclusions (laughs) logically echo what you just said, because for me, if you break down the entire story of what we did and all of the research that has been put in by experts and enthusiasts over the years, there are only two possible conclusions to the Patterson-Gimlin film. One, it's either one of the greatest paranormal hoaxes or hoaxes in general ever accomplished that remains undebunked to this day, or two, it's actual footage of a real Bigfoot. All right, folks, that is the
2: end of our conclusions. It is now time for us to introduce you to Bob Gimlin, quite probably the only living survivor of the Patterson-Gimlin film incident at Bluff Creek. That's presuming... Patty has moved on to greener pastures. Oh yeah, we don't know. We don't know, but (laughs) uh, we do want to tell you a little bit about Bob before we get into him. This guy is tough. If you go to his website, you can get a DVD. It's a documentary that's a life story of him, and it has a lot of background with him and information, and we watched it on the way to Fresno when we went to see him, so we could get some good background on him. It is just really fascinating. Forrest, can you briefly recount
0: how Bob Gimlin wound up in the Navy? Well, as far as I can remember from the DVD, what the story is uh, essentially is that he was with some of his younger buddies there and they all wanted to serve, but Bob really wanted to be a Marine. And the other guy said, oh, forget that. They the, were all drinking, by the yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Navy life is better. I'm sure the food's better. You're on a ship. You're not trudging, crawling through the mud. The Navy's for us. Like, you should join the Navy. He's like, no, no, no. I, I really want to join the Marines. But he made them a bet. He said, I'll tell you what, we'll we'll toss a coin. If it's heads, we'll all join the Navy. How's that? But if it's tails, you all have to join the Marines with me. And they flipped the coin and Bob lost and he had to go join the Navy. The problem is the rest of his buddies chickened out and they did not join the service. When he showed up to sign
2: up, he was the only one there. Yeah. And this, to me, is a hint of Bob's character. He went through with it. Yeah. He went ahead because he said he was going to do it, and that's what he did. And if all those other guys welched, well, that's not going to change his character and what he said he would do.
0: Yeah, so he kept his promise and
2: he went into the Navy. The other thing about Bob is he should have been killed several times, and I'll tell you why. One time he was in a horrible car accident. People died in the accident, but he recovered from that. He was laid up in the hospital for quite some time. His legs were badly damaged. The engine flew out of the car or crushed someone else in the car. Yeah, I think what
0: happened is that they'd picked up a guy, I think, hitchhiking, and they were all riding in the car, and this guy wanted to drive this other guy's car, uh, one of his buddies, and it was somebody, it was not a vagrant. I think it was somebody else of their age or even in the service, and he wanted to drive this car, but he was driving really fast, and I believe Bob was asleep in the back. And next thing they know, this guy, I think, hit a pole. Yeah. And it sent the engine all the way back into the car and just tore everybody up.
2: Yeah, it was not good. Not everybody lived through it, but Bob did. No, they Barely. didn't think
0: Bob was going to live. Yeah. In fact, I think he heard a doctor saying this guy's got maybe a week or so.
2: So that's one time Bob should have died. Another time, he spent his whole life riding horses. You hear talk of him being a rodeo man. And yeah, he rode in rodeos, but what he really did for a living was break and train horses. And you can tell even now when you go talk to him, that is his passion. That is what he loves. That's what he did his whole life. So at one point he was out in a circular ring working on a horse, trying to break it, teach it how to behave properly. And it threw him. And not only that, it did it with extreme malice and then uh, came back around again and stomped on him. Right. I believe. Yeah.
0: Because he'd known this reputation of this horse was cantankerous, not even waspy, which is a term Bob uses Frequently. for being skittish. Yeah. Yes. But this thing was mean and he was trying to break it. And i remember as the way he told it is that he pulled back on those reins and it was rearing up on him and then threw him. And but what happened is that it bucked him off. And then when he was in midair, this thing back kicked him in yes. the chest and snapped his sternum in midair. Then he's lying on the ground And he's trying to crawl to the house or the exit of the corral, like a 60-footer pen there. This is the Bruce Lee of horses. Came back around and trampled him. So he's about, I think,
2: 85 feet or something, don't quote us exactly, from his cabin or his house. And he is almost at death's door, but he crawls across the ground over to his house. And I think he has some problem getting inside the door. I can't remember if he even got inside, but then...
0: His wife comes he home. He's bleeding. Yeah, and he's bleeding. His he can't chest, breathe. Uh, his sternum is snapped in half and he's having trouble breathing. He can't even lift himself up to sit in the chair.
2: Right. Point. And so his wife says, I'm going to take you to the hospital. And Bob says, no, I don't want to die in a hospital. Don't take me anywhere. Just get me into the bed. And he gets in the bed and waits to die. Propped up Sitting at up. this point. Yeah. yeah. So he's in there, yeah. I think a couple of days and it becomes clear That he's not going to die. At which point he goes to see somebody and they figure out what's wrong with him. And he slowly gets nursed back to health. I just want to say again, this is a sign of very stout character and a very tough man. These stories are, it's not the kind of stories you hear these days about people. So I think, (laughs) I also want to remind everyone that he was pushed aside by Roger Patterson and probably more specifically Al Attlee, when the Patterson-Gimlin film was processed and they wanted to take it on the road to make money off of it. And he got pretty upset about that. But by the same token, it was not great for him and his family. And you'll hear him talk a little bit about that tonight and what his wife went through during this whole ordeal. But even as mad as that made him, when Roger Patterson wound up being on his deathbed just a few years later, Bob buried the hatchet. Again, I think that points a lot to Bob's character and the kind of person he was. Even though he got screwed out of a fair amount of money that was made out of that film, when Roger was dying, he went to visit him in the hospital. I don't think anyone who meets Bob Gimlin can think he's lying about everything that happened. I, for one, no longer believe the Patterson Gimlin film is a hoax. I believe it's real. And I believe Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin captured the holy grail of Bigfoot evidence, and that for complex psychological reasons, The world at large refuses to accept or believe it. Tonight, you can judge for yourself after you hear our interview with Bob Gimlin. We only had a few minutes with him and we were using some new gear, so it's going to sound a little different from what you normally hear. We had a field microphone that's uh, new to our portfolio. I'd like to thank Jim Harold for recommending that piece of equipment. Since we only had about 30 minutes with him, it was the end of a long night. He had already been on stage for well over an hour. He's 87 years old and had to get up at 4 a.m. the next morning. We were trying to keep it brief, I hope. We asked him not to tell the story again. He's told the story a million times. You can find that story on YouTube. You want to hear him talk about what happened in Bluff Creek? It's on YouTube. But we did ask him some other questions. We're going to finish this series and tonight's episode with Bob Gimlin. We hope you've enjoyed it. We're sitting here with the Bob Gimlin. It's really the chance of a lifetime. We drove up from Los Angeles to see you today, Bob. It's really great to see you, and we appreciate you staying up a little bit late to talk to us. I know you have to get up so early
1: tomorrow. Well, yeah, that's okay. I mean... Uh, get to talk to you guys, as a pleasure, and uh, we'll just work with it. One of the first questions I wanted to ask you about, again, was
2: that feeling you had when you first came upon Patty, or, or before you came upon Patty, did you have any kind of sense, because I imagine you do, being a tracker and a hunter, sometimes you might sense that
1: something's there before you see it. Did you have anything like that going on? Well, no, I didn't because I was just riding along, leisurely riding along, enjoying the weather and enjoying everything. So I didn't really have any sense of that it was going to have anything happen, you know. Went around the bend in the creek there, and there she stood. For you,
2: when you first saw her, did you have a, a fight or flight sense, or was it? Did you feel threatened, or were you
1: in shock, or were you pretty calm, or how how did you feel in that first moment? Well, I wasn't really too excited, and I didn't get scared because we'd been down there riding many many miles for almost a month. We'd been down there for 20 days. I just thought, oh. My God, they really do exist, so it was a it was a
2: revelation for you, yes, absolutely. It's my understanding and our understanding from just research and reading about your experience and everything it, it got to a point where I don't think you probably expected everything that came down on you, all the skeptics and that sort of thing and and your wife maybe had asked you to stop talking about it, so you decided to just lay low for a while.
1: oh yeah, yeah, definitely because my wife was really disappointed, and you know she'd come home crying and saying, well, i Uh, you know I went through a whole bunch of static today about it and I'd say honey just don't pay no attention she said I have to I'm a teller at the bank at the bank and she said they come up there and start talking to me while I'm working and I said oh yeah and I felt bad about it but there was nothing I could do about it you know and then when she went to strictly just uh, the bookkeeping part of it well then that was kind of a blessing for her we just talked to Bill Munns for two hours yesterday, oh, yeah. and he said to tell you hello, by the way. Well, I, hey, I, my hat comes off to Bill. He's a great guy, and I just I feel bad about not staying in contact with him, but I just get really busy, and I can't hear. If I don't have my hearing aids in, I can't hear nothing, so I don't do much calling.
2: Well, that's it's fine. He didn't seem to have one ounce of animosity towards you. He said to tell you hello
1: and that he hoped you were doing well. So well, I, same way, to my, same thing goes back to Bill. Goes back to Bill because he's a great guy.
2: Yeah, we really enjoyed his book. And I, you know, one of the things that we had discussed with him, and this was the, what I wanted to ask you about. It, Forrest and I both wanted to ask you a little bit about was. Do you think there was any possibility, because when you look at all the stories about you know, the Morrises and the costumes and also Bob Hieronymus, who you talked a little bit about, do you think there's any possibility that Roger might have had a costume and was trying to film some, for the docudrama and all that before you guys came across Patty that, and it was something that you might not have known about?
1: Well, it's possible because I didn't, I didn't have that much time with Roger, you know, and it's possible that it, this all happened, you know, but I never knew about it. Never knew anything about anything that was going on. The only thing that I remember is when Roger was getting quite a few months before that, he was kind of getting uh, getting some work done to get a documentary to generate enough revenue to put an expedition down there. And I did some tracking and riding horses for him. And then, of course, that all dropped and he never did finish it up didn't bother me none because I was riding the horses anyway and and I'd ride off places where the white guys wouldn't ride and so I didn't care I mean I'd go right straight off the side of a mountain and the the back feet sliding up underneath the nose and a lot of those guys wouldn't do that but it didn't bother me you know I mean God I'd done that all of my life
2: I want to ask you a tracking question because I know you're a skilled tracker and you had experience in that. And during that time when you had wanted to track her, the impression that we got was that Roger, you know, he was concerned cuz his horse had uh, ridden off with his gun and he was uh, maybe wanted to go back and get the uh plaster or whatever you guys were using to pour the tracks and that sort of thing. But when you were actively tracking her when you had gone up and you found the wet footprint and all that What was
1: tracking her like? Was that like, did you feel a little bit like you might were tracking a human or? Well, yeah, basically because it already appeared to be a human type creature, you know, walking like it did and swinging its arms and everything just appeared to be a human type creature. And so when we went up and found a half of wet track it stepped in the creek of course and then stepped on the a flat rock and there was half of a track there and then went right on up through the rocks and the cliff and i wanted to follow up through there because i could see where it scratched and broke rocks and stuff going up through there and of course Roger didn't want me to and all I want to do is see it again. That's why I wanted to ride after it immediately when it disappeared and Roger didn't want me to do that because he wanted to get his horse caught up and get more film in the camera and uh, you know there were so many things happened so quick so much uh, and we were running short of time because uh, up there, you know, in the mountains at four o'clock, it's getting a little bit waspy, a little bit late. And uh, so, by the time we got down out of there, it would have been pitch dark. So, did you go back and try and follow the track after, like, Roger got his horse back and
0: you got the, you got the pack horse back? And when you were looking at the footprint, did you try and follow it into the brush? Where do you think it went? I mean, it, it, I know you said it went kind of up the hill, but.
1: Well, well this is quite a lot. See, there's mountains. The downfall and stuff caused kind of a jam here, and the creek went around. And there's a mountain over here, and a mountain up here, and a mountain back here. Well, not a. I mean, pretty steep. Not yeah. not bad. And then this big uh, open place where it walked across was all bare, you know. And this was up this other creek tributary of this main creek, part of another little creek that went up to here, and I don't even know, I think it was called Notice Creek. I think that's what Roger called it. I didn't know what it was. That sounds right. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so I wanted to go, but he didn't want me to go. And so I, I didn't have a camera or anything. I just wanted to see it again. And so he said, well, let's get back because we got to get some plaster and, uh, and get the footprints and then do some other research like jump off the stump with the cowboy boot on and, and get an a indication of how deep it would go into the same soil.
2: One thing you mentioned tonight was that you felt like when you look back and you think about having made mistakes and that sort of thing, one of them was d- doing a backtrack. Can you explain what backtracking it would have been, what that actually means?
1: Well, yes. Yes, I can. Backtracking would have been, we would have went back and went where it came from instead of where it went. That was one of the mistakes we made instead of going and seeing how it got up to the crick, or whether it waded up the crick or what. We didn't because we were so busy doing other things, getting other things done.
2: When you first saw her, was Roger in her line, your line of sight so that you saw whatever was happening with his
1: horse? You saw him fall, or you did not actually witness that happening? No, I witnessed all of it. Yeah. All of it. Yeah, he was, with all, he was only three or four horse lengths ahead of me.
2: And your horse didn't buck. It got kind of, as you said, kind of waspy, but you didn't get thrown or anything. No, no,
1: no, no. No, I was, I was I'd rode a lot of rough horses, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it would have took a pretty good horse to unseat me, you know, uh, when I was, like, 36 years old. It
0: did react, though, because people because uh, Bob Hieronymus was saying that, well, you know, that was an old trail horse, and he wouldn't have reacted at all.
1: Well, but He did react a lot, but I stayed on him and uh, kept him under control, yeah. Some video we saw of you on YouTube already,
2: and also we watched your film, there was some suggestion that When I think in the film, you saw her for a lot longer, obviously, than she was filmed. But that look back, you think that was
1: related to you dismounting? I'm quite sure it was because she never made that effort to do that until I started to get off the horse until I got off the horse. We
2: had a theory that uh, maybe the horses were not for her perceived really as a threat. She didn't recognize that humans were there or on them. And then when you separated
1: yourself, that was a new kind of threat to her. Well, it could have been, you know, it'd all be speculation, but I would imagine that uh, the movement or whatever, and then, yeah, and it would have been one unit or one with as long as I was mounted on her. But of course, when Roger was trying to get off his horse, She was just turning to walk away. With regard to Al Diatli, and as best we can tell,
2: it seems a little bit, you actually used the word on stage tonight, you were talking about somebody else or something else, but opportunistic, it seems a little bit like Al had, he saw dollar signs with this thing
1: once it was on film and you kind of got squeezed out of the picture. Absolutely, yeah. When we came back off the trips and stuff, I said, I got to go back to work and get some money coming in because all we'd sold is a a store to... uh, And, uh, of course, Al always took care of all the money and everything. And he said, well, Bob, I'll give you a third. I was supposed to be a third partner. And uh, the check that he gave me, I was going to buy tires for my car. The check he gave me bounced, so I didn't get nothing out of it. Do do you
0: think uh, Al Galley was maybe telling Roger what to do, kind of – Oh, controlling de- the show.
1: He definitely was telling Roger what to do because when Roger on his deathbed apologized to me, he said it wouldn't have been for Al. I wouldn't have never done that to you, Bob. And so uh, Al was backing Roger money-wise and he everything that Al said, Roger did. Because Roger was his brother-in-law.
2: One of the things that you mentioned near the end of your film, and I actually got a little bit choked up when you talked about it, was just about how you went back to see Roger. You, you know, said you couldn't hold a grudge against somebody who was so sick. And one of the things that he was talking about in his dying day was getting tranquilizers and all that sort of thing. That's a, I think that's a side of the story a lot of people don't know.
1: Can you tell a little bit about what he was trying to plan? Well, yeah, Roger was on his dying bed right there, and I kind of knew that. But he said, Bob, I know Al and I really did you dirty. And he said, "Uh, I've got enough stuff and enough equipment to go down. And he said, as quick as I get well, you and I will go back down there and we'll capture one. And I said, Roger, just get well? He died by the time I got out to my car because his brother had come up, his brother had come up when I was getting ready to leave. And uh, I got back out to my car and uh I was doing something out there with and Roger's brother come out and said he died. and I said, "What? They traveled with a guy and said he was me, and uh, went all through Midwest and had had signs up, "Well, Bob Gimlin will be here, and they had some guy about my size and and everything, and it just happened to be that he got called on it from a guy that knew me that was down there. And he he got up and he said you're not Bob Gimlin. He said I know Bob Gimlin, and they had the security throw him out.
0: Well, you, you once said in an interview that maybe it was with the BBC long long time ago, a few years ago, that you know when you were younger you had no thought that Roger could have fooled you at all. Like you were pretty oh, sure. But then but then years later, maybe you thought maybe it could have. Do,
1: do you still feel that way? You know, I uh, that was kind of just an afterthought. You know because. I thought, how could, after I think all the things that happened and how they happened way back in the mountains, he could have never even pulled off anything. And then when when Bill Mons did his book, then I realized that uh, even I realized it at the time, you know, uh, that there was no sag or anything at all in the fur and the, the hair or anything. And it walked over uneven ground without even missing a step. One of the things that
2: I I thought was a great question from the audience tonight when uh, everybody was in here and you were here with Jeffrey for Paranormal Central. Somebody asked you what you saw, because one of the things that struck me was like also when you first saw the film. You were kind of disappointed because you saw so much more with your eyes. And also that person asked, what did you see with your eyes that you cannot see in the film?
1: Well, you can't really see the movement of the muscle in the film. And I saw all of that, you know, as it rippled and moved and stepped and changed sizes from the thighs to the shoulders and stuff. That's what I meant when I said that.
2: And you talked about the lips a little and the yeah, yeah and, the, the, and the bare spots of the fur, right?
1: Yeah, the the, the rubbed off hair off the side of it, where it swing its arms, you know, uh, was
0: small. It reminds small. me of a cat, like when you see when the fur gets real thin, it's like on a cat's head, you can kind of, it looks lighter.
1: Yeah, you know, I noticed that right away and uh, then I could see the lips kind of moving at one time a little bit not not a whole lot and then the difference in uh, uh, the difference of being able to see something with your eyes and than what's on a film you once said that uh, you would never like to experience that again that whole ordeal do you
0: still feel that way and if you did would you tell people about it or would you keep it secret
1: no i'll tell you what uh, i wouldn't really just broadcast it I would tell the chosen few that really meant something to, and yes, I'd like to have the same experience, but I'd work at it a little bit different. I would try to convince her, don't walk away from me. Try to be able to show some friendship or something without any hostility. Well, there was no hostility. She didn't have any hostility, but we were rushing things. it was probably against her will and everything that we were rushing. Everything was going fast. Roger was at her with a camera, and I wouldn't have a camera. I'd just say, "Hey, let's do something. Let's let's be friendly. Smile a lot, and uh, and you know, just not have any hostility thoughts." When I go into the mountains now, I don't even carry a pocket knife. I don't even carry nothing except maybe some fruit or something to give them, apples or pears or, or uh, anything, you know, or an orange. They seem to like uh, peanut butter on a jelly sandwich. And uh, by golly, I do all those things. And if they throw sticks and stuff at me, I just, I apologize to them. I just say, hey, I'm sorry. And if I'm just talking to myself, I still do that. And I turn around and I leave because I figure that they don't want me in the area. You know, if they're throwing stuff at you, they could kill you if they wanted to with a stick or a rock or whatever, but they don't, they just throw it to spook you, throw bark and pine cones and, and different things at, at you. And uh, I've never really ever had it happen to me, but I've talked to a lot of people that has had it happen to
2: them. What do you say to those folks that say, oh, it was a, it's a guy in a costume, this is all a hoax, you've been carrying this on and on forever and ever. What, what do you say to those folks?
1: Well, I just say, hey folks, I'm not trying to convince you that so uh, that they live and they're out there Look at the film and make your own judgment. Give it some really serious thought before you make a, a false statement about it. I just hope and pray that uh, the people who do get to see that will understand that there is no such thing as a man in a suit could. If a man in a suit did have wrinkles and it have to different as it moved, that's what I try to tell folks. You know, I'm not trying to convince you that they live. I know they live it makes a big difference to me you know uh, of how many people out there hear this and uh, and whether they believe it or don't believe it look at the film and make up your own mind
2: That's going to wrap up our series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. We're dark next week,
0: but we'll be back the week after that with special guest parapsychologist Brandon Masulo. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John L-Hi-U-C.
1: L-I-U-C. I'm Lucas Taylor.
0: A-S.
1: Hi, this is Laurie McGann.
0: Hi, I'm Kalen Capson.
1: C-A-P-S-O-N as in Nancy. Thank you folks for listening. Hey, these guys are great guys. You guys probably already know, you listeners already know these guys better than I do, but they're great guys. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and
2: co-produced
0: by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough.